To the citizens of the world, welcome to a brand new program on our prehistoric civilization series. Our guest tonight is Dr. Robert Schock, the award-winning scientist who was the first to prove that the Sphinx actually predates the pyramids and based on hard evidence must be backdated to before the end of the last ice age. Indeed, we have invited him on to discuss some of the evidence pointing to this antediluvian civilization and its subsequent downfall. Dr. Schock has multiple academic degrees, including full faculty professor in geology and geophysics, as well as honorary professor of universities abroad, and has published several books on the ancient civilization even restoring it as a worthy academic subject. His research interest is primarily on hard science like geology, paleontology, evolution, environmental science, but also ancient Egypt and prehistoric ancient cultures around the world. He also teaches science courses, biology, environmental science, geography and science and public policy. No wonder he has received his college's Peyton Richter Award for interdisciplinary teaching. Schock has argued that possibly all pyramids worldwide represent, with other cultural commonalities, remnants of a much older global culture, either through common inheritance or ancient cultural contact around the world. He's one of the main proponents among contemporary scientists researching and proving that mankind's history is far older than the textbooks would have you believe. Furthermore, he lent his name to a genus of extinct mammals, Shokia, of which Shokia sullivani is the genoholotype. In more recent years, he's been engaged in climate science, favoring astronomical causes to climate change, linking it to solar outbursts in our past and future. From his many media appearances, he's been extensively quoted for his work on ancient cultures and monuments around the globe, including Egypt, Turkey, Bosnia, Romania, Bulgaria, Wales, England, Scotland, Norway, Mexico, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, then Easter Island, South Africa and Japan. His research has been instrumental in spurring renewed attention to the interrelationships between geological and astronomical phenomena, natural catastrophes and the early history of civilization. Dr. Schock has been on numerous radio and television shows like Coast to Coast and Ancient Aliens, is featured in the Emmy-winning documentary The Mystery of the Sphinx, that was presented by Charlton Heston and also stars in the film alongside famous author John Anthony West. For his full bibliography and details about his biography, you can go to our presentation page of him at our website when that is put up and uh, learn all the details from there. 
Today, we're going to discuss with him an important aspect of uh, our exploration of the ancestor civilizations, including examining some of the work he's done, and uh, especially regarding pyramids and other remnants of extreme antiquity. Enjoy. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Robert. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. I feel like I'm back in Norway. I've visited Norway once in person, live, wow. and you are in Norway, right? Yes, yes, we're in Norway. When was this? It makes me want to uh, go back. So where were you? Oh, Sandana, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I guess a very small place in Norway. I've never really traveled throughout Norway. But one thing that was very important to me is uh, well, I was giving some presentations there. I was invited for a small conference. Mm -hmm. And we also got a chance to go and see some very ancient petroglyphs that tie in with my research on solar outbursts at the end of the last ice age. So that was very exciting. Yes, that's true. Uh, we have some very ancient petroglyphs. Um, yeah, so I, I know. And I, I'm assuming maybe you went to the west of Norway then? Oh, God, you know, it's hard for me. It was Osavik. What did you call it? Yeah, Os Osavik, the, where the petroglyphs were. And it was Sandana that uh, we visited basically a friend that we'd corresponded with for a long time and hmm. did some presentations there. Okay. I'm I'm pretty sure I know where it is. It's just that the way you pronounce it doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> I can't blame I you. Think, I believe that's it. Sandnes, maybe? Sandan. I have to look into this. Yeah, okay. We have petroglyphs many places, you know, so... Oh, yeah. Mm. But that's great. So you know, you know our nature and all that. A little bit. Uh, just a very little bit. Mm. Well, uh, I hope you come back. You do tell me if you if you have that on your agenda ever. Oh, I hope. We're going to go all over the world today, actually, in our talk, uh, I'm assuming. And uh, yeah, so this is, the, I've been so looking forward to this. I just want to start because, you know, I told you right before we started here that I've been into the ancient civilization camp, if you like, the catastrophist camp for um, ever since I, I awoken to these mysteries at the age of, I guess, 18 or something. Mm -hmm. So I've been reading and researching this a lot. And of course, you know better than me that there's very various quality when it comes to this yeah. topic. But I think that today when they're, they're the kind of the mainstream lid on people's thoughts is crumbling uh, and people dare entertaining new notions. I see that some strains like the ancient alien thing, ancient astronauts, everything is from outer space. Mm. While I defend their right to, uh, and they have many interesting arguments and everything, I, I think it's been too little focus on the human approach that yeah. there is evidence for a ancient human society and it's so great when we also have in academia people who have suffered the mainstream route <laughs> like you have done, that we have people like you daring coming out and pointing to what we found. So I want to just ask you first, are you still working in the natural science department at the university? You're still a faculty member there? 
Oh, yeah. I'm a full-time tenured faculty member at Boston University. I am in what's known as a division of natural sciences and mathematics at – there's a lot of bureaucracy yeah. in any big university. So I'm technically in division of natural science and mathematics within the College of General Studies at Boston University. That's my uh, – sort of official hierarchical affiliation at the university. But yeah, I'm, I've been there since 1984. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon unless, um, I don't know, someone offers me a, a better position. I have to work for a living. <laughs> but that's amazing because I, my biases would tells me that if someone in, in a mainstream role like that sticks their head out and challenges the mainstream narrative that they will be punished we have many examples of this i didn't say i hadn't been punished <laughs> exactly i never said that so uh, so what happens well i've been you know other faculty members at times mm -hmm. within boston university not within my particular college or division but like any big universities there are numerous colleges and schools within the university and People in an archaeology department in another college within the university, for instance, have denied that I'm a faculty member at Boston Jeez. University. They did this behind my back wow. in um, Egypt, for instance, and thought it would never get back to me. They've been very nasty. They've tried to get me fired, some of them. They've mm. tried to make life miserable for me. I mean, what has protected me, and I think I'm in better shape now. A lot of this has occurred over the last quarter century since I got involved in this whole business about 1990 when I first went to Egypt. Yeah. And the early days of coming out, it was very it was very difficult. A lot of criticism, a lot of um, nasty name calling. Mm. Academics can academics can be very very bitter, very nasty, very petty. There's a lot of vested interest. A lot of egos get bruised. So I've seen my share. Mm. Uh, what I was going to say, what protected me in the sense that I'm still at Boston University is I did not do any of this until I made sure I had tenure. Mm. And with the American tenure system, you can't fire someone for uh, the the research they're doing and the analyses and that type of thing. Mm. I mean, you know, if you commit a physical crime or you know, there's other reasons you can be denied tenure, but not well. The way the way things are going, it will soon become a crime to yeah. <laughs> entertain these notions. <laughs> exactly, but right now, at least, I can't be denied tenure because I have a different opinion. But as professor, you... well, and and just a little thing, but I don't really like professor shock. Sometimes people use that. I prefer doctor. Doctor, sure. Yeah, it's a PhD. Professor is. Um, here's my analogy. Uh, professor is essentially. Uh, job description versus the in America PhD the degree if I'm not at a university and don't have a job I still have a doctor but I'm not a professor mm. does that make sense it, do, it does make sense I know the American system is a bit different I know for instance that yeah, exactly. uh, adjunct professors are doing all the work <laughs> yeah yeah they're adjunct yeah 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 yeah, but the, actually, technically, I'm a professor no matter what because I have an honorary professorship which will never go away. I guess I might. Yeah. I assume they would never revoke it. <laughs> no, no, don't. And I would say that 
looking in hindsight, 25, 26 years later, mm -hmm. which is essentially a generation, if you would, there is now more and more support for what I've been saying, what I've been working on. Uh, I assume that we'll talk about that in the next hour and a half or so. And people are saying to me many times now over the last couple of years, have they apologized to you? Have mm. my academic critics apologized to me? And the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> but it means that they... Um, well, put it this way, they are uh, less critical of me to my face. I'm getting more acceptance, I believe, even at Boston University. In fact, I've seen that very, very recently when instead of being belittled and uh, sort of pushed to the side, I've actually been asked to give um, what is known as a master class to Boston University alumni because this is such a popular subject among the um, general public. As you mentioned, ancient aliens. Well, of course, in America, I don't know about Norway, but in America, there is a show series called Ancient Aliens. Yeah, I was referring to that. Yeah. Yeah, gone on for, I, I want to say it's maybe going into its 13th season or something. I only say that because I was at a conference not long ago where um, I can never pronounce his last name, but Giorgio. The, yeah, yeah, the Greek guy. The yeah. creator of it, the guy with the crazy hair. Mm. I was talking about how he's so proud it's going into um, whatever season it is. I think it's been over 12 years now that's been going. And one can think what they want of ancient aliens, and I can think what I want. And I'm not an ancient alien proponent, although I have appeared perhaps reluctantly on their show, but they have lots of good people on their show, sure. lots of people that don't support the ancient alien, ancient astronaut point of view. Mm. But my point about right now is that there's lots of acknowledgement among the general public and, you know, a lot of the general public is very well educated. They just may not be in academia. Mm. A lot of acknowledgement that there are strange things in our historical past, we'll call it mysteries, whatever, that are not explained easily by the classical archaeological historical perspective. Now, I don't think you need to invoke ancient aliens to explain them. I think we have other explanations. Mm, exactly. But it is a popular subject, and I think important subject. Mm. No, I usually say that... Um Regarding the ancient aliens, I usually say to people who are not familiar with it that do watch it because what they focus upon, the many of the different mysteries, especially when we're talking archaeology, Egyptology and all that, is real mysteries. Yeah. It's just that they offer an explanation that isn't necessarily the answer. But, but yeah. I mean, that's two different matters, right? Yeah, exactly. So you get to become aware of it, at least, when you watch the Ancient Alien series. Well, it, it's sort of the, well, I mean, it's a theme of the show. You ex they, ex they introduce this incredible mystery, and mm. then at the end, could it be Ancient Aliens or something to affect and I also want to say, uh, despite us being located in Norway, we have, uh, uh, after we began this year, we've been going half of our audience are now American, actually. So so many people listening in here will know you and your work already. Okay. Well, I hope hopefully people will know me in Norway, too, or get to know me in Norway. 
I really hope that this can help in making the Europeans aware of you. Yeah. We, we have an English-speaking uh, program, so obviously we are biggest in UK. How many listeners are you getting nowadays? We, we, we're just a year old, and uh, so far we have uh, 350,000 uh, individual yeah. listeners. We've had, we have, have a million downloads, but 350,000 distinct people. Which blows my mind. I had no idea that so many people would check out podcasts, yeah. you know, but it's the new media. It's how it is. People are fed up with the mainstream media. So, huh. so uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get uh, some attention to your books, which I think they really deserve. Mm. Albeit, I must admit, I have um, uh, not got around to reading. I, I've uh, looked in one of your books. Sorry. Yes, but I, I have the ambition. I did some research on you, of course, and I saw all your books, and, and I realized I need this because I've been an antediluvian civilization guy for my whole life. Mm. And still, I haven't gotten around to your books, but, but I, I think it's okay. I know the subject. I know a lot of your work. Uh, everybody mentions you, <laughs> of course. Okay. And like I said, I've been reading one of your books, so I think we can manage to get something interesting out of it but uh, yeah everybody who are interested in this i, I think we need uh, more should we say attention to exactly this ancient human civilization the antediluvian civilization camp needs so we hope to become mm -hmm. like a camp for that and we're having an entire series which this program is a part of and as you know we've already had on um, your colleague uh, michael cremo Yeah. And we're going to have many others on, and we, we try to have on people who have, if not uh, an academic credentials, which, which we, we really enjoy if they do, at least they need to have a scholarly approach to this, yeah. because anyone can dream up anything. Exactly. Well, you have to be careful. I'm sure you're aware of this. Yeah. I don't want to name names, but there are a lot of people out there that, and this is part of my problem as an academic, and I don't mean that I'm holding it against them. Well, let me just say it this way. I'm an academic. I try to do absolutely thorough, meticulous research. I try to get everything correct to the best of one's ability. I mean, things always are subject to revision. We learn more. We have to revise our theories. And that's part of the process. But there are a lot of people out there in this field, should we say, and I use that term loosely, who have essentially no academic credentials, no, and I'm not trying to be elitist whatsoever, but they haven't trained themselves, they're not discriminating, mm. and then there are the ones that are simply out there to be famous, quote unquote, mm. to write books and sell books, to do YouTube videos. Uh, I know some of them, and I have been so, should we say, disgusted when I find that they simply make things up. Mm. And when I go to a site, and it's all total nonsense. So, I mean, unfortunately, we have that problem. I'm just being really honest and blunt, and one has to sure. be very discriminating. And the problem for me, this raises real issues When I am talking about serious research, I'm making a serious case, and then one of the academic colleagues, my academic colleagues, or say I'm at a serious conference, 
not that I go to non-serious conferences, but, <laughs> but you know, someone raises the issue of so-and-so. Hmm. And I have to say, well, yeah, I, I agree with you about so-and-so and how they are fraudulent. Hmm. But then they use that to paintbrush, you know, brush over and dismiss everything in the field. You see what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they do us no favors, these sensationalists. No, exactly. The sensationalists, the uh, ones that are just trying to sell books and documentaries or just get their name out there mm. so they can get on the lecture circuit, etc. If they're not doing good work, which unfortunately a lot of them are not doing good work, it's not doing us any favors whatsoever. It's actually causing real damage. Mm. And so... Thing. One thing I sometimes say, and I felt this, and I'm being very sincere here, and I'm, I hope you realize mm -hmm. I'm very honest about things. Good. Uh, and I don't, I frankly don't want to mention names in this context purposefully. No. But I find myself, and I have found myself for t literally 25 years now, or a little more even, sort of caught between two realms. My strict academic colleagues have not been happy with me because I have not been supporting the paradigm. I've not been supporting them and their worldview. But then I also get in trouble, if you would. I have people being very unhappy with me when I point out the faults and weaknesses in some of the um, arguments and data and theories of ostensibly people whose who are in, quote, the same camp as I am. At least that's the general perception. Yeah. So I, I, I'd have to be a very, very careful sort of line between the two. Yeah. No, but I think, seriously, we have to... We have... To, I say we, we, the people who are open to, to these facts of an ancient human history have to be the first to point out the exactly. weaknesses. We can't leave that to the debunkers. Exactly. Mm. Because I think only if we do that initially, if we do that immediately, that's the way you have to really keep the science on track and make mm. the case. And the case to me is very important that, yes, we have to change our paradigm. Yes, we have to change our worldview. Mm. It was not the case that civilization first arose between 4,000 and 3,000 BC. We have very strong evidence. I mean, I would say incontrovertible evidence now that there was an earlier, what I call an earlier cycle of civilization that goes back mm. before the end of the last ice age, back before 9,700 BC. So for me, in my research, 9,700 BC is a really important, Hmm. pivotal date my early work and i don't know how much you want me to talk about any of this in detail because a lot of people will know who i am perhaps and know my early work on the great sphinx but i became involved in this initially by going to egypt in 1990 that was my first trip to egypt as a phd hmm. geologist and geophysicist to look at the Great Sphinx of Giza, to look at the Great Sphinx from a geological perspective. The assumption at that time, among all the Egyptologists universally, I would say, because I don't know of any exceptions in 1990, they believed that more or less, you know, a few of them would argue about a few decades here or there, but 
basically the Sphinx had been carved in 2500 BC from the limestone bedrock. End of story. What I found geologically, to make the long story short, is that the oldest portions, the core body, had to go back thousands of years earlier. So that implied civilization before civilization should have existed. And it went on from there. And I'm now convinced that the core body of the Sphinx goes back to the end of the last ice age. We have a site in southeastern Turkey, Gobekli Tepe, that was being excavated by Klaus Schmidt, uh, Professor Klaus Schmidt of the German Archaeological Institute. Unfortunately, he's deceased. Uh, but, you know, that goes back to the same period. It straddles the end of the last ice age. Uh, we can talk about all these in more detail if you like. But the point is that we have really strong, incontrovertible evidence of this earlier cycle of civilization, just like the classical ancients going back 5,000 years talked about civilization thousands of years before them. And this is a major paradigm shift. And we also have to discuss and consider what brought this early cycle of civilization to an end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have all of these points you mentioned now is in my notes, so we'll get to it. Okay. My point is that this is a really important story. Yeah. It's a really important theme, and it should not be allowed to be dismissed because you have people on the outskirts, whether the academic outskirts just saying it's all nonsense and pseudoscience, mm. or people on the other side essentially fabricating things for their own purposes to glorify themselves and then... You know, that's an easy way for people to dismiss it mm. uh, from the academic side and point to someone and say they're they're not a good scholar. Yeah. And I'm guessing that some of the fantasts will accuse you of being a shill if you don't go along with every sensational claim that some uh, hack has dreamt of. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. But but never mind that. Uh, I want to point to a couple of things here uh, first before we go into the nitty gritty details, and that is that uh, you. And by the way, uh, what you mentioned here about uh, the Sphinx, I guess that's where we should begin actually, because uh, that's probably where your name started to pop up in popular outside of academia when when you did something really paradigm breaking there but i would just want to say before that that when you went down, down to the sphinx back in the day it was by the way before we knew about good good tech yeah, yeah. And, and all that when i first thought when i first started because the chronology is actually important mm. when i first started proposing and talking about the sphinx and talking about the sphinx as being a relic and i'll use that term now a relic of a former civilization, a much earlier civilization. And I want to be very clear right now because sometimes, you know, it's easy for people to get confused. Mm. The head of the Sphinx, in my assessment, is a dynastic head. The head is not the original head. Mm. The head was recarved. So we're talking about the core body, the oldest portions of the Sphinx. And when I first went on record between 1990, and 1991-1992, that period, I uh, presented this at Geological Society of America. I presented, presented my work at the American Association for the Advancement of Science at these major conferences. I published uh, articles 
on my redating of the Great Sphinx, all of that was occurring before Gebekli Tepe had been effectively discovered. I say mm. effectively discovered because the site was actually known going back to the 1960s, but it had not been excavated. All people knew is that there were some stones sticking out of the ground, and it was assumed that they were actually Roman or Byzantine, more or less, less than 2,000 years old. So no one knew what was there. No one had any evidence at the time other than my initial work on the Great Sphinx to suggest seriously that there was physical evidence for this earlier cycle of civilization. So I just want to make that point. Mm. And it was easy for the academics. And I I'm, I grew up in academia. I spent all my life in academia. I can understand how you can be skeptical when there's only one piece of evidence mm. uh, for something. And they did say to me, rightfully so, where is there more evidence of antediluvian, we'll use that term, civilization. Now we have it. Yeah. No, and I also noticed that you, and this is so important, you have an approach of multiple scientific disciplines, which is so, so important in this field, because you can see very clearly, those who pay attention, <coughs> know a little about academia, can see that <coughs> Egyptology has more or less delved into a religion. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I use that word, uh, no excuses. And th this is so terrible because if you leave the scientific principle, you risk that the scientific institution becomes unscientific, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. the big paradox. Yeah, but, but don't, don't be mistaken. Um, and this is not meant as an insult, although it can sound that way. Mm -hmm. Egyptology, at least classically, Egyptology is not a science. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Egyptology is much more affiliated, closely affiliated traditionally with things like linguistics, um, uh, art history, basically art history, historical studies, that type of thing. Mm. In fact, when I was a graduate student and I can't make this stuff up, I was not even involved in Egypt at the time. But as a graduate student, I do remember reading articles by scientists because I was studying science and it was part of our studies of just, you know, how can science be used in other fields? And I remember reading articles by people who wanted to apply scientific methods, be they geological, maybe chemical, radiocarbon, etc., to Egyptology and how the Egyptologists were so resistant mm. to any kind of scientific thinking or any kind of scientific methods because it was very foreign and alien to them. So again, I'm not trying to sound nasty about it, but I but people have to realize that there are different types of fields and different, we'll call it mentalities, mm. that um, practitioners in those fields have been raised in. And something that this ties in with is that I started in Egypt in 1990. That essentially is a generation ago. Now I believe that the new generation of Egyptologists, at least I want to hope that the new generation 
is much more flexible, much more open to scientific techniques than the older generations were. Yeah, well, it helps that we got the gatekeeper, Sahi Havas, uh, out of the picture. I mean, he's yeah. been a catastrophe yes. for so long. And, and we all know, of course, the, we're going to have on both Robert Beval and Graham Hancock uh, okay. in the future. And we, we'll get into the depths of uh, the crimes, I'd say, of Havas. Uh, yeah, but of course, there's also some very strong personalities and animosities between Hawass and other people. Yeah. I don't get into that too much right no, now. No. I don't want to get into that. I know Hawass personally. I've had private dinners with him. When I say private, you know, just he and I. It's not like we were trying to. I was trying to collude with him or anything. It just happened in. On a personal level, I felt I've always gotten along with him. Okay. Has he said all kinds of nasty things about me in the press? Sure, but okay. that's sort of the nature of the business. But I agree with you um, in that now that we have a new regime in Egypt, actually there's been a couple of turnovers, yeah. I do have high hopes that we can start to make progress. Katie and I, my wife Katie, and I were in Egypt this past summer. Mm -hmm. Once again, we had the opportunity to meet the director of the, the new director of the very new Grand Egyptian Museum, which is still under construction. We had the opportunity to meet members of and the minister of the Ministry of Antiquities, so the minister of the Minister of Antiquities and members of his uh, staff. I just have a very good sense that uh, we will be able to make progress in the future. Hmm, that's great news. Uh, we've all been a little worried of uh, which way Egypt will go. So uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's a volatile situation, and you never can be certain. Look hmm. at the summer in Turkey, because yeah. Turkey is the other major country, modern country that's involved with this because Gobekli Tepe, this incredible site, Gobekli Tepe is in Turkey. It's in southeastern yeah. Turkey near Urfa, near the border with Syria. And I don't know if everyone's been following Turkish. Oh, yeah. We, we're so worried about Erdogan, you know, but I think that both the Erdogan, who, who is more or less become a dictator now. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> In the attempted coup, which yeah. unfortunately, well, I won't say. Well, that. if it was a coup. I, mean, I don't know what the outcome should have been, but it failed. I mean, it shows the level. It, it failed, but what didn't fail was his counter coup. That's right. He's been cleaning uh, cleaning table and all these academics, for instance, everybody has lost their jobs, but also in academia. But my hope is that both the guy in Egypt, the dictator there, and Erdogan, both of them will realize that to their countries, respectively Egypt and Turkey, that the tourism industry and the research industry is so important that they will let those things go on. That's what I'm hoping anyway. Yeah, I'm hoping to, and, and we talk about that, Katie and I in particular talk about that, and I talk about that with other colleagues. I, I It's just, it's a, it's a difficult situation in both countries. Mm -hmm. Egypt tends to be very conservative. This is what I've found over the years. So it takes time for things to sink in. It takes time for them to perhaps acknowledge that they have really good evidence of this earlier cycle of civilization right in front of them. And it does not 
It does not deny dynastic Egypt or the importance of pharaonic Egypt whatsoever, in my opinion, but it adds to the story. In Turkey, I believe in some ways it's much more clear cut. We have Gebekli Tepe. It sits there and essentially almost in isolation effectively. And there's no question that goes back because there's all kinds of good radiocarbon dating, stratigraphy, etc. Okay, how, how old is it definitely? Oh, uh, Gebekli Tepe, the best radiocarbon dates are on secondary material, so not primary material, uh, because it went through several phases of construction and reconstruction. So they're on secondary material. They go back to the middle 10th millennium BC. Wow. But wow. I am convinced, based on a, a, a chain of reasoning, that the earliest portions of it go back before the catastrophe of the end of the last ice age, which is 9700 BC. So in round numbers, I would, I think we're safe saying that the oldest portions so far uncovered at Quebecle Tepe are go back at least to about 10,000 to the period 10,000 to 9,700 BC. There are other portions of it which have not yet been excavated that Schmidt himself suggested before he passed away prematurely could well go back earlier than that. Hmm. So what's important here in my assessment for my work right now and my interest right now is that we have at Quebecli Tepe, a site that straddles the key date of 9700 BC, the end of the last ice age. Yeah. But yes, we're talking a site that um, is in round numbers, 12,000 years old. 10,000 yeah. BC. And, 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 and the debunkers have always said, oh, oh, if the Sphinx is old, where else can we see this? Uh, exactly. But now we have it. But now we have it. And this is absolute startling confirmation. It's incredible confirmation. Yeah, but I, I'm hoping for a revival of the catastrophism because the uniformitarians, those who think that everything has been a gradual involvement, oh, yeah. despite the fact that you have, for instance, mammoths with undigested food in the belly oh, yeah. <laughs> and all sorts of stuff, despite old evidence, there were evidence even before the great uh, smoking gun like Blackie yeah. Tepler. We've had many forms of evidence, but yeah. despite that, the uniformitarians have uh, had a monopoly, but I think that is cracking now. I, th I think that's cracking. I mean, uniformitarianism really goes back to Charles Lyell mm -hmm. in the uh, early 19th century, 1830s or so. And I think it's like many things, it's sort of run its course. And yeah. yes, the paradigm is still held by many of the older generation, but I've seen in my own career. And so when I say my own career, going back to the late 70s when I was an undergraduate, the early 80s when I was a graduate student, as I said before, I've been at Boston University since 84, so that really dates me, I suppose. Wow. Uh, I've, I've seen more and more cracks in the uniformitarian paradigm mm. to the point that I look at it, to use the analogy, it's like a piece of glass that it has so many fractures in it, it's just <laughs> about to fall out. And that's, that's an excellent picture. The last little push is almost there and the whole thing is gone. Yeah. 
But we have a lot to cover today with you, Robert. So <clears throat> let's get to work here. Um, I have many points. And I, I want to go back to the beginning again. Sure. Um, isn't it true that when you were dragged down to check out the Sphinx, that you actually came there with a skeptical mind and that due to the evidence, you had to change your mind? Is that how it went down? Yeah, it's absolutely true. In fact, I will tell you, flying to Egypt, because I, I was invited to go to Egypt by John Anthony West. Mm. You know who that is? I know who he is. We haven't got a hold of him yet, but we want to have him on too later. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's a nice person to have on. Yeah. I actually, he was, I was in Egypt with him once again this summer. Mm-hmm. I was in Egypt a couple of times this summer, two weeks included. It included, one of the trips was a two week trip with John Anthony West. Katie joined us, my wife, uh, Zeke who is John Anthony West's son, joined us. It was very nice. Wonderful, yeah. So I've known him for a very, very long time. He's a very close friend at this point. That doesn't mean we always agree on things. I just <laughs> want to point that out. Friends mm-hmm. can disagree and disagree oh, strongly. <laughs> but he he first invited me. I first met him in the late 1980s. He gave me the whole Schwaller theory because it all goes back to Schwaller de Lubitsch. Oh, I love Schwaller. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and Schwaller's observations of the Great Sphinx and that, according to Schwaller, and Schwaller, it turns out, had a good eye. Mm. Schwaller suggested back in, I guess, at least the 50s that because um, he died, I believe, in 1961. Yeah. Uh, he suggested that the Sphinx had not been eroded by wind and sand, but it must be some kind of water erosion on the Sphinx. And if this is true, that would date the Sphinx, at least the oldest portions of the Sphinx, to a much more remote period, since we know geologically that we have had Sahara Desert hyperarid conditions in the vicinity of the Sphinx effectively for the last 5,000 years. But, you know, I was an academic at the time. I'm still an academic. Uh, I met West. He gave me all this theory and talked to me about it, showed me pictures. I thought the pictures were pretty interesting. But I told him pretty, I told him very bluntly that I wasn't going to express an opinion on this without having studied it firsthand for myself. And, you know, what did he know about geology? So he... I thought we'd end the discussion by saying, well, I'd have to get to Egypt to study it firsthand. Mm -hmm. I thought nothing more would happen. Lo and behold, he raised funds and uh, financed a trip. And as long as he was willing to pay for the trip, I had never been to Egypt. So I said, okay, I'll go to Egypt. West is a doer, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He (laughs) is. Yeah, so I said I would go to Egypt and... To answer your question, on the airplane flying there, I remember very specifically thinking to myself that I was, should I feel guilty? I was sort of feeling guilty, robbing him in the sense of, he wasn't (laughs) paying me, he wasn't paying me anything, but he was financing this trip. And I was in a free trip to Egypt just to go over there Mm -hmm. and to be able to say very simply once I got there that, oh, there's a perfectly good geological explanation for these features. And it doesn't refute the 2500 B.C. dating for the Sphinx, Mm -hmm. because I didn't know what that geological explanation was. But I was quite certain that my academic colleagues 
one of whom was Mark Lehner, who was uh, on the side of the 2500 BC Sphinx, had gotten his PhD from Yale, just like I had my PhD from Yale. I was quite certain that these guys, these Egyptologists, must know what they're talking about, that West had apparently no clue about either geology or Egyptology. And I was confident that once I got there, I would be able to explain these apparently anomalous features on the Sphinx, that I would be able to explain them within the context of the last 4,500 years. Mm -hmm. So not only was I skeptical, but I was feeling guilty on the flight over there <laughs> that I was wasting his time and money. Uh, and taking advantage of him. <laughs> and taking advantage of him. I'd never been to Egypt yeah. before, and I thought it'd be nice to go see Egypt. I'm so happy that happened. So what did you find out? So I got there, and and it's not an exaggeration. We went, we saw the Sphinx, and within the first few minutes, I knew that there was something amiss. I knew that there was something wrong, mm -hmm. and the explanations of the Egyptologists did not conform. They did not fit. Mm -hmm with what I was seeing geologically, that there was in fact a real anomaly here. It was not going to be able to, it was not going to be able, I was not going to be able to, I can't talk. I was not going to be able to explain it away easily and fit the Sphinx into a 2500 BC time frame that there was definitely something weird going on. And, and that just on first glance, wow. That's great. As he could see that I there was something going on. I mean, I was yeah. sort of honest that, you know, there was something. But on the other hand, I really needed to study it because maybe there was something I was missing. So mm -hmm. I think he'll say it sometimes that he was frustrated because he couldn't. I think the way he's put it is he couldn't get a definitive statement out of me. Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be an easy, simple problem, and I would say, oh, this is a such-and-such such type of weathering. It's now obvious to me, seeing in person, that yes, this can happen even under desert conditions in the last 4,500 years. That was not the case. No, no, but I can appreciate your problem, because here you are, a young scientist, and you're uh, confronted with the world's most famous, one of the world's most famous ancient structures that uh, yeah. everybody agrees upon, and here you see real doubt. Of course, you can't just give, a, you know, a one-liner there and then. This has to be researched and explored. Yeah. So I, I see your conundrum there. Yeah, exactly. So it was a real conundrum. Mm. The other thing that I noticed right away, and this was, I don't want to say disappointing to me. It was just interesting. These the people, you know, there were certain people that I'd spoken to before I went to Egypt, and they'd uh, given me all this advice about how when I first see the Sphinx, I got to be careful emotionally because it's such a powerful statue, blah, blah, blah. And I don't disagree with that type of thing. And I mean, I do put real stock in, quote, we'll call it, quote, sacred sites and the power of them on the consciousness and emotion. I'm not dismissing that, but I go, I see the Sphinx, I'm hit by this conundrum of the geology. And the other thing that struck me immediately is not to put the Sphinx down, but I said, the head is too small for the body. Mm. The head is out of proportion for the body. You don't see it so much when you're looking at it up close and you're right there because the whole thing is so huge. Mm. But, for instance, when you look at it from a distance, especially there's a nice cliff to the um, 
south of the Sphinx. I have to orient myself mentally. And you can look down on the Sphinx and you can see the head is much too small for the yeah. body. But that made perfect sense to me, actually. The other thing, and I realized it very quickly, is this made perfect sense if, in fact, there's something going on with the body that is, it's much older, and the head is not the original head. Yeah, it's it's been reworked, yeah. and some suggest that uh, original, uh, of course, a, li- a lion's head, and others say that it was an Anubis head. What do you think? Uh, well, not Anubis. Forget Anubis. An, okay. But, but it, mm. I'll come back to Anubis in two seconds. Yeah. It was definitely a reworked head, a recarved head. And I also saw geologically, and again, I, literally this was all within easily the ten, first 10 minutes, probably flashed through my mind in the first two minutes or less, mm-hmm. that the head shows very different weathering and erosion relative to the body. And yes, it's a slightly different limestone but even taking that into account, there's something different going on with the head versus the body. And so that made perfect sense to me, although I didn't want to say it out loud, if something, if the body was older and the head was reworked, recarved. As far as a lion or Anubis or a person, who knows what the head was? I don't know that we absolutely know. My inclination is that the modern Sphinx, what we call the Sphinx, was originally a lion. Mm. That was uh, originally a lion. It actually faces the constellation Leo on the vernal equinox, or did face the constellation Leo on the vernal equinox back at the end of the last ice age, the age of Leo. Yeah, exactly. So it, it fits with the procession of the... Yeah, but I'm not basing my analysis on that, no. but it, I think it's an interesting fact yeah. Uh, what I think we can say very clearly, in my opinion as a geologist, is that it was not Anubis. Okay. It was not Anubis. Robert Temple, because I will name a name here since he uh, falsifies things in his book about me and says I say the opposite of what I actually said. And mm-hmm. I've said all this in print, so there's a little little skirmish going on about this. Mm-hmm. Robert Temple, in his... Uh, work or his book and he's written some articles he's claimed it's anubis to me that's absolute nonsense he used for instance the argument that the back is flat rather than it being uh the sort of the raised inclined back that you would see on a lion well that's because it's heavily weathered and it's weathered down Mm. to a bedding layer so that's why it's flat it has to do with the basic geology but more importantly he says that the Sphinx was surrounded by a moat, and that's what explains the water weathering, as he calls it. And I've analyzed this very carefully. That is uh, basically uh, nonsense. You wouldn't get that type of weathering from it simply being filled with water. You would get, not to get into a lot of technical details, but the water would be coming in from the east, as he suggests, because the Nile is to the east. You would get undercutting of the beds. You wouldn't get um, the same profile. You wouldn't get the same type of vertical fissures open at the top. So there's all kinds of problems with his geology. He just doesn't understand the geology. Also, if it was Anubis, it would probably be facing west, not east. Anubis should be facing west. Mm. But what is really important, getting back to the head, is 
his hypothetical reconstruction of the head, it would be the face of Anubis, and it would have to be such a big face that you could recarve it down to the Sphinx. Mm, good point. Now, so it's totally the neck and part of the head would be the current head of the Sphinx. If you look at Anubis, what does Anubis have? It has huge ears. Yeah. It has a huge snout. There's yeah. absolutely, to my knowledge, no evidence that there was that much rock there originally of um, what was, it was essentially an outlier, uh, a knoll to have created the ears and the snout. And if you had had the ears and the snout to the size and proportions he's talking about, and they wouldn't have been any smaller, I'm not convinced that the snout in particular could have supported its own weight. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, it's just... Yeah, good point. I don't want, I don't want to beat this in the ground because it's not worth the discussion. Uh, if people want to know more about my opinion on the Anubis and moat theory of Robert Temple, I actually have an appendix in my book, Forgotten Civilization, in which I discuss this, not because I was trying to go after him whatsoever. I have I don't know him personally. I know we know a lot of people in common, but the problem is when you put something like that out there, you misrepresent information, which he did. And uh, then everyone asked me about, as you are now, I have to be able to respond. So, yeah, sure. So there's an appendix. It's actually, I'm looking at the book. It's appendix one. Yeah, it's your latest book, isn't it? In my book, yeah, Forgotten Civilization, The Role of Solar Outbursts in Our Past and Future. I've I've had um, encouragement from listeners to have you on on this uh, regarding climate change and all that. I, I don't think we can go in the depths that needs today, at least. Oh yeah, well, see, climate change is very interesting. It ties in with this because we have major climate change at the end of the last ice age. Yeah. If, if I could just make a quick comment, sure. and there's all, so much in the way of politics. I'll put that crudely, and oh, I yeah. see this in academia: politics yeah. over climate change, and there are issues here that people do not distinguish. Again, I'm a scientist. There is no doubt in my mind that climate changes over time. We see that in the geologic record. We have huge changes. A mm. major change occurred in 9700 BC virtually overnight. That's now demonstrated just in the last two years or so based on Greenland ice cores. Mm. And we have a major, major climate change you know, from glacial, fairly extreme glacial climate to um, the current interglacial, non-glacial mm -hmm. uh, change. And that has nothing to do with humans or anthropogenic change. I believe it has to do with the major solar outburst. And mm -hmm. we've had all kinds of major and minor changes in climate, both since the end of the last ice age and certainly cycles of uh, climate change. Yeah, I mean, the dinosaurs died out, uh, certainly. Yes. Yeah, so climate changes. And yes, there was a trend in the 20th century based on certain data sets, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, that there was a warming effect. The problem is, and this is the point I want to make right now, the mm -hmm. problem is sometimes people try to divide it into the uh, 
the global warming deniers or the skeptics, the climate skeptics and the climate believers or whatnot, and they don't distinguish two different things. One is climate change, whether it's warming or not, whether there's climate change. The second is the causal mechanism yeah. of climate change. Mm. So you can actually agree, one can actually say, looking at the data, that yes, in the 20th century there was global warming. And I'm focusing on the 20th century now because things have gotten messy in the last five years. Yeah. Uh, but that there was global warming, global climate change, and not deny that, but that doesn't mean automatically that you think that was caused by humans and that, that you think it was anthropogenic change. And many people out there, they don't understand that distinction. They think that either you believe there's global warming or you don't. Yeah. And if you believe it's global warming, then you believe that humans did it. No, you can actually believe there has been global warming in the recent past, and it has little, if anything, to do with humans, or that humans are only a slight component of it, et cetera. There's all this yeah. gray area in between. It's, and climate science is incredibly complex. And one thing I talk about in my book, and I'm not certainly not the only one to talk about this, I think you've uh, alluded to people, particularly in Norway, scientists, mm. that there are a lot of other factors going on when you're talking about climate change. And one of the significant factors is the sun. solar. Yeah. yeah, solar scientists have been squeezed out from the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, this plays an incredible role in climate on Earth. And we have Greenland. And the Vikings went to a land that actually was green upon our time. Yeah, it was green. It, wasn't, it was more than just a PR. <laughs> but Robert, we have so much to cover in so little yeah, time. Uh, what I suggest is that we make another show later on this. Okay. Because we're going to have a series uh, where we interview different uh, academics that uh, do not get their voice out enough when it comes to the climate question. So this is such a huge topic that that if you're game, I'll have you back and we'll take this on then. Uh, well, yeah, we'll see. Well, yeah, I, sure, we can maybe do that and, like mm. you say, get back onto the topics. Yeah, but I want to I want to stay in Egypt for now, uh, and I want us to uh, move over to the pyramids because, as I understand it. They have a different dating than the Sphinx, don't they? Well, it depends on who you talk to. In my opinion, they have a different dating than the Sphinx, but they also have potentially a different dating than what the standard Egyptologists propose. Mm. So, yeah, the, the Great Pyramid is the one that's most famous. It's the wonder of the ancient world. The classical view, people argue about the exact date, but the classical view, the standard modern Egyptological point of view, is that the Great Pyramid was built first by Khufu, the pharaoh Khufu, mm. let's just say 2500, not 2500, 2550, so 50 years earlier. And that's based on a graffiti, I understand? Say again? And that's based, based on a graffiti? That's all the evidence? Um, no, no. That's not no. It's based on the reign of Khufu, and what you're referring to is the graffiti up in the relieving chambers, which I have seen a couple of times. Mm. I've been up there personally, mm. and in the relieving chambers, there is, among other things, a cartouche of Khufu. This has made the news recently because of um, a couple of Germans whom I also know 
uh, were implicated or was suggested that they damaged it, et cetera, which yeah. actually they did not based on the no. photographs I had taken previous to them even being up there. So that's a big sort of, hmm. that's another topic for another day, perhaps. Yeah. But I've been up there, there's definitely a cartouche of Khufu, the Pharaoh Khufu, who reigned about 2550 BC. So let me put this in context mm -hmm. and I'll come back to the cartouche for two seconds. See, all these things are very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, Unfortunately. So Khufu's reign, let's say about 2550 BC. Some people say, you know, give it a difference of 25 years or even 50 years, but somewhere around 2550 BC. Then Khafra or Shefran ruled about 2500 BC. He's said to have built the second pyramid which is almost as big as the Great Pyramid. And he traditionally has been said to have had the Sphinx carved out. So there's where we get the 2500 BC for the Sphinx. Mm. And then the third smallest pyramid is um, the Menkara or Mycerinus Pyramid, which is, you know, a few decades after the, uh, the second pyramid. So they're all built within a century or less. Mm. Going back to Khufu, and the cartouche, personally, and other people will argue about this, they'll argue that Howard Weiss, the 19th century explorer and early Egyptologist, they'll argue that certain people argue that he faked that cartouche, that he put it up there. I don't believe that. Based on my inspection of it, I'm convinced that it is a genuine ancient cartouche. Whether it goes to Khufu, the pharaoh of the fourth dynasty, 2550 BC, one can argue a bit. I suspect it probably does. But what I suspect more importantly is that the Great Pyramid was reworked. It was rebuilt. The top of it, including above the king's chamber and probably the king's chamber, too, are not original. So we have a structure here in my assessment that the origins go back to before dynastic times, and it was built and rebuilt and built again mm. to, you know, into what we now see. And I think there's very good evidence that this is the case with the Great Pyramid. I also uh, find evidence for that with the Second Pyramid and the so-called Mortuary Temple of the Second Pyramid, and likewise the Third Pyramid. So the pyramids that we see now superficially I would say create were created or they acquired their present form in Old Kingdom times, Fourth Dynasty, as the Egyptologists would date them, but their origins go back much earlier, just like the Sphinx goes back much earlier. Hmm. Okay. I don't know if that answers the question simply, <laughs> but... You know, it's it. I could go on a, a lot longer about the pyramids and the complexities of the pyramids, but the bottom line is that uh, what we see now are the latest incarnation from Old Kingdom times, but their origins, their bases, their substructures go back much earlier. Mm, mm. And I believe the details, the complexity, you you do outline them in your books, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I actually wrote a book um, some years ago called Pyramid Quest, 
where I talk specifically about the Great Pyramid. But if people are going to look at a book of mine, I actually suggest Forgotten Civilization as the latest, because that's where I get into things like mm. the end of the last ice age, the earlier cycle of civilization. And, you know, the pyramids, do they go back, their origins go back to that early period? I suspect so. Mm. But what's really important is that we had this earlier cycle of civilization, and I believe the um, relevant for our time today is what caused it to be destroyed, the whole um, concept of a solar outburst. Yeah, and you have a book called Voyages of the Pyramid Builders. I, yeah. yeah, I guess you get into that there too. Yeah, I have another one. I get into that there too. Mm. But I got to say, you know, like anything, you revise your theories and whatnot. So, for instance, in Voyages of the Pyramid Builders, I was not just in that book, but my earlier work, Voyages of the Pyramid Builders, I want to say that was published in 2003. So that seems like a long time ago now. And we've learned more. Mm. And one thing where I revise my thinking, have revised my thinking since that book, is that I was a bit of a catastrophist. I still am a catastrophist. We were talking about uniformitarianism versus catastrophism. Mm And comets have hit the Earth periodically. There's no doubt about that. Comets, asteroids. Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Yeah, I remember I'm, I, I was a graduate student when the theory about the asteroid hitting the Earth and killing the dinosaurs first came out. And I remember faculty members. I was a graduate student. I remember yeah. my fellow, my faculty members who I respected laughing at it and thinking it was ridiculous. And now it's been demonstrated to be the case. But Mm. the point I want to make right now is the end of the last ice age and even the beginning of the Younger Dryas, if that means anything to some of your uh, listeners, and again, we could talk about the details, was not a comet. Mm. There's no evidence at this point, in my opinion, as a geologist, for a comet at or around the end of the last ice age. And I don't care what other people have been hearing because there's been certain people who have heavily popularized this, and I've read all the literature up to this point. I've analyzed it myself, and there's been a huge argument back and forth in the technical literature. And the bottom line is that the evidence does not hold up for a comet at that time, and we need to look elsewhere for what occurred. And what occurred was um, something... Could you hang on with the explanation? Because uh, I've scheduled that for later in the talk. Okay. Uh, The the explanation, the theory of why it went under. I think that's important. Okay, but I just want to make the point now that, um, you know, comets are... A comet is almost like ancient aliens. Uh, (laughs) It's it's an easy explanation when you need it, but reality is something else, at least on the evidence. So anyway... But you've made me think of it because you were asking about the Great Pyramid. Yeah. And when Katie and I were in Egypt this past summer, I actually was looking at or we were looking at something that was pointed out to me. And I like I like to give credit where credit is due mm-hmm. to a couple of friends, uh, Egyptian friends. And one is it trained as an Egyptologist, Yosef Ayan and uh, Mohammed Ibrahim, and they pointed out to me a very strange feature on the plateau actually near the second pyramid that looks like it's burnt rock, wow. which 
comes in with a plasma strike that we will come back to. I think later we discuss these things. Yeah. So all these little things come together. Right. And Khufu supposedly was aware, based on the inventory Stella, which we can argue about too, but this is an ancient Stella uh, from the late period, but supposedly records something from Old Kingdom times. And it records, among other things, that the Sphinx was already in existence in Old Kingdom times and that in ancient times it had been hit by, quote, lightning. Hmm. Interesting. So there's all this evidence that when you start looking at it and put it into a proper perspective, it says something very different happened. And these structures are much different in age, at least their origins, much different than what the conventional Egyptologists and historians have been telling us all along. Yeah. No, I think it's key and crucial to understand what did happen because, uh, I mean, if we don't learn from our history, we our future is doomed. So that applies on an individual level and it applies on a collective level. Yeah, I think so. And, and one thing I like to stress, and I know we're sort of jumping around here, but one thing I like to um, stress personally is, you know, some people, they're into Egypt and, you know, I... I I experience all these people who are incredible Egyptophiles, which I'm not, actually. <laughs> I don't want my house decorated with Egyptian themes all over the place or whatnot. But I love Egypt. I study Egypt. But what is important to me studying Egypt or any of these other ancient cultures is not just the fascination for what they were and how they were different from us, but what we can learn from them and what they have to tell us and mm. I have become a, convinced that they knew things in some cases or they had had experiences that we've not had that we can benefit from. Or maybe maybe an heritage that they remember that we have forgotten. Our heritage, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Because many people think that the pyramids were built by survivors, um, yeah. if not the original civilization. So yeah. there's many possibilities. But before we move on from the Egyptian pyramids, I have a couple of more questions about them. Okay. Uh, these are tied up to more sensational um, aspects, but <clears throat> there's probably some scientific insight into this. So I'd like you to account briefly for that. One is the famous secret chamber story. I just saw a couple of days ago, actually, that they have now announced that they have found secret chamber in the, I think it's the Khufu pyramid. And the other question I'd like you to uh, handle is, mm -hmm. is there evidence in your mind supporting the hypothesis that uh, one engineer launched that it, they could be machines, ancient machines, batteries, electricity, something like that, or even weapons, even have a weapon function? So what do you think about these two? Okay, the chambers, you know, I'm a geophysicist. I have a PhD in geology and geophysics. So mm -hmm. actually, I should not call myself a geophysicist because I consider myself primarily a geologist. Okay. But I've done geophysics. I have some sense of geophysics. I have some sense of the techniques they're using. And until we have more data, we don't really know what's being picked up by, I think it's a, they call it the pyramid scans, that type of thing. Mm. Are there some anomalies that could represent chambers? Yes. But do we really know exactly what they are at this point, at least based what, I'm, what I've seen? I've not seen the technical... Uh, data because I don't know that's even been released. Mm. 
Uh, but, you know, in the popular, on the Internet, that type of thing, I don't know. I mean, I have to withhold judgment until mm. I actually see it. And I tend to be very careful about such things. I've learned from experience not to go judgy until I really have some good, solid evidence to use to make a judgment. I mean, I've, I've run into that problem with other things. I hate to bring up another subject, but it's a great example. Yanaguni. I don't know if you're familiar with Yanaguni, the underwater. Oh yeah, the, the underwater monuments that you researched. Mm. Yeah, and they're very. When you actually dive them, and if you know any geology, if one is uh, has any expertise in geology, they tell a very different story than what a lot of people would like to hear in the popular press. Let me just ask about them. Are those the same underwater structures that Graham Hancock has personally explored? Yeah. Mm, okay. And I've dived them many, many times, and uh, he and I have very different opinion of them. Let's put it mm. that way. And I'm a geologist, and I understand the geology, and so we'll leave it at that. Yeah, but I mean, if there was a global civilization prior to the Ice Age, we would expect to find, even if those are not the examples, we should expect to find stuff under the water due to where the water level was. Oh, sure we should. Of course mm. we should. But this is an example and something I was talking about before in general. Sure we would, and I suspect there will be stuff to find underwater, but that doesn't mean you need to turn something that isn't into it just to try to prove your point. Yeah. And is there evidence, that, well, since we're talking about Yamaguni, is there evidence that there were ancient people on the island, even potentially back at that very early period? Yes. Mm. And were they possibly using the Yanaguni structure when it was above water? Because it would have been, even if it's natural, mm. and it is natural in my assessment, it would have been a striking monument. It would have been striking. It would have attracted attention then, just as it attracts attention now. Mm. Would they have visited it? visited the site? Would they have maybe used it as a platform for the It was probably a tourist site. <laughs> a tourist site, sure. Just like here we have natural tourist sites. Yeah, yeah. Or I sometimes use the analogy the um in Europe in particular where you have the beautiful cave paintings. The caves mm. are natural. In some cases the caves have been slightly modified, but they're basically natural. The paintings themselves, of course, are by humans. Mm. So you have the same interaction in my assessment at Yanaguni, where you Yes, you have ancient humans there. You have evidence of that, maybe even like 1% or 2% or maybe up to 5% retouching of the site. But that doesn't make the entire site artificial and part of move or whatever some people want to make it. I was there not that long ago. Well, I say not that long ago, just a, a couple of years ago. And if I could put a plug in, people can look it up, although I think it might not be available in the UK. Uh, Monty Halls, a uh, fellow named Monty Halls, a uh, uh, fantastic diver, and he has a dive team. And he did a series of, um, I guess, you know, diving on interesting sites around the world. He did a documentary, which I am in, I was invited to participate in called what was it called uh, Japan. japan's lost atlantis something like that mm, mm. and uh, i know in america at least it's posted on youtube but if people look up monty halls in japan's lost atlantis they'll probably find it and i thought he did a very fair treatment of looking at both sides of the argument and effectively coming down 
I believe on the side that I'm talking about that, yes, here's an incredible structure that goes back to that early period, probably attracted people, as you say, like a tourist attraction even, but that doesn't make it artificial in and of its own right. On the other hand, at Gunung Padang in Indonesia on the island of Java, I believe that we do have an artificial ancient structure that goes back to this very early period, this earlier cycle of civilization. And as we continue to research around the world, we're going to find more and more. But uh, just, you know, okay. you have to be discriminating as yes. to what real and what is not and where the gray areas are. And I don't apologize for that. I mean, that's uh, that's the first requirement of any serious approach. Yeah. So so it's great that you, you keep to that. Yeah. But what about the machine nation theory of the pyramids? You obviously have heard about that. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So the... Here, I think we've run into a fundamental flaw, and I know some of the, again, I know I know people who espouse some of these theories, and I really, you know, I'm not trying to be personal about any of this, because, again, part of the world of academia, at least ideally, although it doesn't manifest itself mm. in reality, I can tell you that from experience many times, <laughs> it doesn't manifest in reality, is that you should be able to disagree on things without taking it personally. Mm. Although in academia, parts of academia, there's nothing more personal than disagreeing about someone else's theory. <laughs> yeah, we all <laughs> that, know that's that. That's a reality. Yeah. This is the um, human condition, if you ask me. Yeah. 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 But anyway, to think of these as machines, whether it's a power plant or it's a weapon or it's um, for refining uranium, which is another suggestion. Uh, I'm talking about the Great Pyramid in particular mm. now, or whether they're somehow to fertilize the Nile Valley um, in some conventional system. I think the fundamental mistake here, I'm not convinced by any of these. Mm. Uh, and I think the fundamental mistake is to look at ancient structures and try to interpret them in our mindset, that somehow they reflect our way of thinking, that somehow if you're going to put all this energy into building this huge structure, it must have some kind of, quote, function, practical function, or be, you know, produce something financially valuable like energy, water pump, weapon, it's another one. I mean, there are so many theories. Yeah, but they weren't graves, I assume. Yep. But you certainly don't think they were used. Say it again? Uh, I assume you don't subscribe to the old notion that they were graves, the pyramids. No, no, no. They're not tombs at no. all. Oh, nonsense. Mm, I agree. It's absolute nonsense, too. I'm not sure we really know what they were. Mm. My, I don't know. You know, I'm a geologist. I don't actually know what they were. Were they used in a later period for initiation purposes? Yeah, ritual. Yeah, yeah. rituals. Mm. I don't have any doubt whatsoever that they were used for that. Was that their initial purpose? I don't know. I would suspect that their initial purpose had something to do with probably initially protecting people from. Ah. They might fire. What was happening at the end of the last ice age? I think a lot of these things were yeah. inspired by the major solar outbursts, which I guess we'll get to at the end of the last ice age. You go underground. Mm. What is the oldest portion of the Great Pyramid? It's a subterranean chamber, deep underground in bedrock. Mm. 
Once you're down there, does it enhance consciousness, that type of thing? Yes, and there are very good reasons for that because you're filtering out a lot of geomagnetic junk, if I could put it that way, and subjecting yourself only to, if people know what it is, very long wavelength, um, low-frequency waves, Schumann resonances and whatnot, which has been demonstrated experimentally, have a healing effect on humans, have, um, I'll call it sort of emotionally uplifting effect, that type of thing. I mean, it, it has real effects on emotions and consciousness. And Yeah, you can even buy pyramids that you can use uh, for different practical purposes like that. (laughs) They're a far cry from being the real one. But yeah, they have some of these effects. And so there are these effects. But is that secondary? Is that the primary reason they were being built? I don't know. Another, I will tell you one theory I put a lot of stock in for the Great Pyramid in particular. Mm -hmm. Another one agrees with me. Uh, on this, and it's not original to me, Richard Proctor, the astronomer, English astronomer in the 19th century, probably much better known in his own day than he is nowadays, he suggested that the Great Pyramid initially, not initially necessarily, but at one point in its development was built up only to the 50th level. What that means is that the Grand Gallery existed, but the King's Chamber did not exist, and the Grand Gallery was open to the southern sky. So you have an immense tube open to the southern sky. Now, anyone that knows anything about ancient astronomy, and in fact, pre-Galileo, pre-telescope astronomy, the way you map very, very precisely, stars and planetary positions, etc., is you have a huge tube oriented perfectly north-south, which the Grand Gallery is, open to the southern sky so you can watch stars transit. Hmm. He pointed out that the Grand Gallery would be the perfect setting for getting incredibly precise data astronomically, which mean astrologically from an ancient point of view. And I would point out that uh, Johannes Kepler, who was a great astronomer as well as a great astrologer, mm-hmm. he was known for his astrology, yeah. he used data from Tycho, Tycho Brahe, Tycho or Tycho Brahe, people pronounce it Yeah, the Danish uh, astrologer, astronomer. Yeah, the Danish, the Danish. And how did Brahe get his data? He used huge instruments, but his instruments tended to be wooden, etc. If he had had the Grand Gallery open to the sky, he would have gotten even more precise data. And it was using that type of data that Kepler was able to figure out the elliptical orbits of the uh, planets. Mm. Interesting. Uh, so the suggestion of Richard Proctor, which I think has a lot of credence, is at least at one point in its usage, it may have served astronomical hmm. uh, functions. And this is not actually, um, uh, this is not actually um, what do I want to say uh, contradicting other certain theories, which I put some stock in. For instance, my colleague and friend Robert Bouval 
who has done the correlations between the pyramids and the belt of Orion. Mm. By the way, we see Orion expressed at Gebekli Tepe also. Mm. And Baval has pointed out that the shafts coming out of the Great Pyramid point to important stars in the sky. Yeah, we're going to have him on for this. Yeah. Yeah, so, so all of these things start to tie together, in my opinion, and that, you know, the traditional Egyptologists have effectively denied that the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, did any serious astronomy, hmm. uh, at least until Ptolemaic times. But we're finding all kinds of data that that's not the case whatsoever, that they were probably very good astronomers and astrologers, because, again, until the 16th, 17th century, astronomy and astrology went hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so this ties in with the whole classical concept of as above, so below, and mm, hermetic cosmos united with the world. So there's a game back to your issue of were the pyramids and the Great Pyramid in particular big machines? That is a different mindset. To think even in those terms, I believe, is a different mindset and a modern mindset, a very different mindset than what the ancients were thinking in. Yeah, the ancients were very uh, religious and spiritual, I'd say. Yeah, I don't know if religion's the right term, because in modern context, you think the religion and, you know, organized religion, I think there was a spirituality and a philosophical inclination and looking at the stars, looking at the stars in the sky. The Egyptians thought that uh, we had the potential to be reborn as stars. Yeah, and they didn't even distinguish between science and spirituality. No, no, they didn't. For them, it was just a great degrees of the same reality. Exactly, exactly. And this is actually a distinction that is relatively, relatively recent really codified in the 18th, 19th centuries. Royal society were hijacked by materialists, yeah. yeah yes, exactly. Mm. But uh, even you don't have to go that many centuries back to find that it, it was not the standard view. And many people don't realize that. No. Let's hope we can help educate on that. Moving on to a very good transition here, because when I realized that there were pyramids all over the world, that blew my mind. And I want you now to account for some of this. You don't have to go into detail about this, but the two biggest and also the most controversial, and many people don't think they are pyramids. I want your take on this, but you have um, the claim of the Bosnian pyramid and the Antarctica pyramid. But those two are very controversial, maybe not even pyramids at all. But you do have real pyramids all over the world, don't you? Yeah, you do. You do. And I've talked about that in the past. I mean, I don't know. It's not something I've worried about. Well, how do I want to say? You know, it's... (laughs) What I'm trying to say is I've focused on things in the past and then I've sort of moved on. Not that I don't still find them interesting. But, yes, you find pyramids around the world. You have more pyramids in the Americas than you have any other place. Now, a lot of them are smaller. We uh, know that there are pyramids in China, Mm. but they haven't been explored. They've sort of been suppressed. Mm. You have, of course, the pyramids in Egypt. So, yeah, you we find pyramids around the world. I will make the quick comment that the – I'm not sure what you're referring to as the Antarctic pyramid because I've heard a couple of different things. But mm. we don't know what's in Antarctica. And uh, 
Uh, do I think Atlantis is in Antarctica? No. Uh, do I have any high hopes that we're going to find, at least anytime soon, relics of ancient, ancient civilization? Antarctica? No. I mean, geologically, it, it, there's, there's a lot of problems with that. Okay. Um, if I had all the money in the world and I could explore any place in the world to try to find um, more definitive evidence of this early cycle of civilization, I'm not going to go to Antarctica. Okay. Where, where would you go then if you had? Well, well, actually, what I would pursue, there's two things I'd, there's a lot of places I would go and pursue. One would, and I'm very, if I could get permission, and, you know, if I had all the money in the world, I think I could get permission because money often yeah. opens doors <laughs> and opens avenues. Yeah. Uh, Egypt, I mean, there's a lot in Egypt, and I think uh, we're just starting to scratch the surface. Oh, you mean buried uh, pyramids in Egypt? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And then another place is Easter. Island. I think we have a lot on wow. Easter Island and potential on Easter Island and that there's a there's a lot more going on on Easter Island and we have the Rongo Rongo that maybe we'll have a chance to talk about on Easter Island. Another place of course is Turkey that there's so much more in Turkey. Urfa, the city of Urfa which is half a million people or so under Urfa when they dig um, for road work or to build a new building or underground parking garage. They often run into strata, rough, often run into layers that go back 10,000 to 12,000 years or more with mm -hmm. uh, you know, evidence of humans in it. So they can explore that way again, because just like, at least in America, if a developer hits um, ancient Indian relics, they don't want anyone to know about because it, it could stop their whole construction project. Right. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot going on there. But I did want to comment on the Bosnian pyramids. Yeah, Bosnia. Just tell us first, have you been there and checked it out personally yet? Yes, I have been there. I've okay. been there and I spent, um, oh, I forget, I guess close to two weeks there with Samir Osmanagic, mm. who is the primary promoter of the Bosnian pyramids. And I've said this in print, I've said it many times, and I've gotten plenty of hate mail for it. Mm. And maybe I'll get more when I say it now. But the Bosnian pyramids are not ancient structures. Mm. Uh it's a hoax. It's a fraud. And so you don't even think that if they dig more, uh, they may come. You already rule it out. There's enough evidence to rule it out. Oh, then there, look, and again, I hate to side, and then people say, oh, you know, you're just siding them with them because they have PhDs or whatnot. But a whole uh, group of European archaeologists have come out and said as much that's a fraud that type of thing. Mm. When you go to the Bosnian pyramids, these are, and I'm speaking as a geologist, and I would love for them, I want to say this, I would love for there to be huge ancient pyramids going back 12,000 years, as has been suggested, mm. in Bosnia. That would be wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Mm. But I'm not going to give my blessing, so to speak, to something that's not real, that's not there. What you have in Bosnia are natural geological structures. They're Miocene um, sandstones and siltstones interbedded uh, with various conglomerates and whatnot. They've been tectonically faulted. 
There are some nice right angles in some cases. There are uh, layers of sandstones and uh, conglomerates that people can try to pass off as ancient concrete that's even stronger than modern concrete. Well, yeah, it's stronger than modern concrete because it was formed over millions of years by natural processes. Mm. Um, and you can carve them up with a backhoe and make them look like stepped pyramids, et cetera. That doesn't make them so. It's, it's a bunch of nonsense. The problem is People don't understand geology. They don't really know what they're looking at. You have people who are very charismatic and argue the case, and they're making money off of it. When I was there, I talked to lots of people in the street, lots of restaurant owners, et cetera. I could not find a single one that really would say definitively they believed these were pyramids, but they all smiled and said nothing and said, look, it brings in tourism. I'm not a scientist. How do I know? All I know is that people are coming to my hotel. People yeah. are eating in my restaurant. People are buying my trinkets. You know? So there's a lot of other agendas going on here. Yeah. And you do have a few ancient artifacts around and within the so-called Bosnian pyramid. So there are some real archaeological sites there. Oh. But they're being destroyed, frankly. Uh, by the the nonsense that's going on with the Bosnian pyramids. So maybe I'm a little outspoken here, but I just don't buy it. And then there's been all kinds of fraud about energy beams coming out of them. And, mm. you know, it's just, I, I looked okay. at a bunch of raw geophysical data for it, and it's not what people were saying. It, it, no, but we want your opinion for the record. So it's good that yeah. you... you okay, yeah. So that's my opinion. And yeah. I've, I've said this in print. So. Okay. Um, but, you know, and I, I love Bosnia. I want to be very clear. I, I Bosnia is a country. I sure. love the, that area of the world. I was going to say, uh, to be on positive side, I've, sp I've been to Bulgaria a couple of times. And we may not have found pyramids in Bulgaria, but there's a lot of evidence of really early sophistication in Bulgaria. Hmm. Um, some people may have heard of the Varna gold. Uh, it's these gold artifacts hmm. that go way back. Yeah. And in fact, in some cases, a colleague of mine uh, uh, Dr. Smolinov has demonstrated that apparently the linear measurements that they were using relate to the cubits that were used in Egypt, but go back much further than dynastic Egypt. So in Eastern Europe, uh, there's a, there are a lot of really interesting things that are real, that are genuine, that tie in with the story. And again, it goes back to what I was saying before. We don't need to make up things or latch on to things that uh, there's not good evidence for yeah. or latch on to things that have essentially been falsified for monetary gain or yeah. gain. Uh, no, I get you. Yeah, that's my opinion. People can disagree with me, but I find most of the people who disagree with me have never been to these sites, number one, or even if they have, it's been very quick and cursory, and they don't really understand the geology or other aspects that they're looking at. Be that as it may, we do have real pyramids around the world, like you just pointed out, and like you read. We have pyramids. Yes, like you've been writing about. But my question about them is, is it more fair to say that they were a heritage culture and that the pyramids themselves are not antediluvian? Or, or what does the evidence say? Yeah, I think most of the evidence says that most of the pyramids 
probably are not, we're using the term antediluvian, probably not, I would say, going back to before the end of the last ice age. It's more of a heritage. Mm. But what we are finding consistently, I would say, is that most of these ancient structures, whether they're pyramids or other structures, what you see superficially, and I'm using that as a geological term, so what you see on the surface tends to be a bit younger, but they're built on or cover over, or they're essentially restorations, if you would, even very ancient restorations of much earlier structures. Mm. So, mm. Yeah, because that's how they also built temples in the ancient days. They always well, built them upon older temples. That's right. So you consistently see whether it's temples and the temple, the term temple, this is one of my pet peeves too, the term okay. temple <laughs> serve a throwaway term. Yeah. For instance, Gebekli Tepe is touted by many people as the world's oldest temple. Now, how do we know it's a temple? Hmm. The term temple is just a throwaway term that people use if you don't know what it is in its ancient... Better to say sacred site? Is that better? Yeah, sacred site's probably better. Mm. But, you know, a lot of archaeologists, and again, I don't mean to broad brush too much, but if you don't know what it is, it's either a temple or a tomb. Mm. The Great Pyramid, the pyramids are examples of that. You don't really know what they are, so they're tombs. Mm. Even though there's not a lot of good, solid evidence that they really were tombs, at least the classical ones later middle kingdom etc yeah they probably were used as tombs and for instance nowadays everyone can relate perhaps to a cathedral cathedral can be used as tomb as a tomb or tombs that doesn't mean the primary purpose of the cathedral was to be a tomb for some king good point good point but where were we going back to um these older structures you consistently find under them, even older structures. And I don't want to put words in someone else's mouth, but I'm just thinking about uh, Bouval's work. And we mentioned Robert Bouval before, and I'm working on a book with him right now on the Sphinx specifically. Wow. That puts a lot of this data together. Cool. We're collaborating between the geological data, the astronomical data, the mythological data. And something he's pointed out is, and I think he makes a very convincing case, the Orion correlation going back to 10,500 or so BC. And as he's pointed out, at least in the past, I believe, that doesn't mean that the pyramids as we see them today are 10,500 BC, but it does mean those points are significant. And I would say, this is now me speaking, mm -hmm. that the substructure, what they're built over, whether you want to just call it sacred mounds or something else, does go back to that earlier period. Mm. So again, it's not a simple either or. You no. can't just look at a pyramid in China and say, oh, that's such and such date, because a lot of these structures, they're built and rebuilt and built again. Mm -hmm. But at least <clears throat> those people who did that back then had some kind of memory, which we don't. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. we've lost. And that's the thing that we, that's one of the big general lessons from the ancients I think we have to keep in mind is that they had real memory and sort of long-term memory and heritage. Yeah. Nowadays, at least in America, the average American, they have very little perspective on history. Yeah. 
Now, very short term. Yeah. Now, time is flying. Um, before we take this further, let's grant ourselves a well-deserved break. Okay. And when we return, we will switch gears and delve into the ramifications of everything we've discussed thus far. Yeah, very, yeah, very good. good. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show... You can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And we're back. I'm joined here with our guest tonight, Dr. Robert Schuck. And we've been discussing his work with the Sphinx and the Pyramids of Egypt, the nature, function, age, and so on. And I have uh, more questions. Uh, the last will be the crucial question, what made it all go under. But before that, I want you to... I, I have a challenge for you. Sure. If you could list from the top of your mind what you think in your experience and studies would be the, let's say, the three best evidences in the world for a global advanced civilization before the end of the last days i such no the three best that's um probably uh i'll give you four mm -hmm. uh i i mean i've got to stick with my early work on the great sphinx i think that that has is being confirmed that will be discussed more in this book that i have come out with uh Beauval. I would uh, refer people to Forgotten Civilization, which uh, where I discuss my Sphinx work. Something else I discuss in Forgotten Civilization, and probably the key one, the one that is the strongest from an academic point of view, is Gebekli Tepe. Mm. Uh, there's no doubt about Gebekli Tepe. It can't even be denied by anyone that it exists, that goes back to that early period. It's a matter of how are people interpreting it. And some of my academic colleagues honestly are trying to dumb it down as much as possible to try. They can't say it doesn't exist. Mm. It doesn't really date to that period, but they can try to make it as, quote, primitive as possible, and they're not doing a very successful job. Mm. There's no doubt in my mind it represents real and culture, sophistication, civilization. I talk about that in my book, Forgotten Civilization. So I'm doing this in no particular way. Well, I'm doing it in order from my point of view. There's my early work on the Sphinx and my early work in Egypt. Gebekli Tepe is probably the single most important site that's really confirmation of what I've been talking about for all these years for decades another site which i'm very impressed by is gunan padang which i mentioned in East indonesia in java this very ancient site which is being explored now by the geologists and geophysicists danny hillman not to jawawa if i pronounce his Indonesian name correctly, but it goes by Danny Hillman. So that's a very important site. And then something that I also talk about to some extent in Forgotten Civilization, actually a great extent, is Easter Island. And Easter Island is interesting because my academic colleagues will immediately react and say, oh, Easter Island doesn't go back more than maybe 
a thousand or maybe 1500 years at the most. Yes, most of what we see on Easter Island, I would agree, might possibly fit into that time frame, but I'm not even so certain about that. I think some of it may have been misstated, but we have evidence coming out that Easter Island is a lot more complex than what we thought. There's been technical papers out in just the last couple of years indicating that human habitation on Easter Island probably goes back much earlier than one. Yeah, sorry to interject, but our Norwegian hero Thor Heyerdahl. Oh, of course. He he proved there were connections uh, overseas. Oh, I was I was about to bring him up. Ah, <laughs> he's a great hero of mine. Excellent. And that doesn't mean I agree with him on everything, but for instance, no, no. he thought there were connections between Easter Island and yeah. uh, South America and genetic agents. And he's a doer. He did it. What? Yeah, he's a doer, like a West, so he did it. He's a doer. Yeah. He uncovered data that both pushes back the date of Easter Island, but there's been much more since then corroborating it. Mm. And he pointed out that there are probably both Polynesian and South American connections to Easter Island, recent genetic data, recent floral data, um, uh, floral plant data has indicated that, in fact, he is correct. The old books... When I say old books, not even that old, just a few years or just a decade old, that talk about Easter Island being nothing more than from Polynesia, nothing more than being colonized very recently, mm. that there's no South American connection, blah, blah, blah. All that has been invalidated, in my opinion. I think Easter Island possibly holds some real keys to what was going on at the end of the last Ice Age. And maybe this will transition into your next topic. That includes the mysterious Rongo Rongo script hmm. that is found indigenous to Easter Island. It's supposedly the only, um, you know, uh, written language, if you would, or written script in Polynesia. Hmm. But there's a lot going on in Easter Island. The other thing I wanted to mention about Easter Island is that at the end of the last ice age, what would have been the case? The We know that sea levels were much lower, and I suspect that there are things along the coast of Easter Island mm -hmm. that could shed light on the history. Because they would be mountaintops back then. I'm sorry? So Because those islands would be mountaintops back then. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, they are mountaintops. It's just that most of the mountains underwater, mm. and Easter Island was more extensive when sea levels were you know, 100 meters lower at the end of the last ice age. It may, may have been a paradise even for the antediluvian civilization. <laughs> yeah. And one person suggested to me, which I thought was very interesting, that maybe Easter Island in that early, early period was sort of a way station. It was a stopping point for people traveling back and forth. Also, maybe it wasn't so much... Polynesians coming to Easter Island and South Americans coming to Easter Island, but maybe things were being developed on Easter Island and then spreading from the island both to South America and to the rest of Polynesia. Mm. So it may have been much more pivotal than uh, has been seen because right now, you know, it's a little island isolated in the Pacific and it's was essentially ignored until it was discovered or rediscovered by Europeans in 1722. So I think there's a lot 
there's a lot to learn on Easter Island. Hmm. I don't think, but are, are anyone in the position to finance uh, excavations there? I'm sorry? Are anyone in position to finance excavation there? I mean, which country is it under? Uh, well, I'm sure there's uh, wealthy people or institutions places maybe someone listening to this yeah. would like to find some work there because i'd love to do some work there i would love to in fact i i have a very much a proposal in mind to do diving around the coast of easter island one thing is to look for quarries basalt quarries along the coastline which have been suggested and we have a nonprofit organization that we set up Myself and my wife and various colleagues called called Oracle, Organization for the Research of Ancient Cultures, or O R A C U L. And if people go to my website, the easiest thing is if I could pl- put a plug in. My website sure. is my name all run together: Robert Shock. So R O B E R T S C H O C H dot com. W W W robertshock.com and from my website they will see the oracle logo and they can go to the oracle website and we are trying to raise money or if there's someone who would like to put a lot of money into it our institution or our foundation we have a vehicle to do that legally and we would love to pursue research in some of these areas including easter island in answer to your question i think you were asking who owns easter island it's uh chile and are they positive to to researching there oh i think so Mm. i think so it just takes money and easter island is not an inexpensive place to research because you have to get there Mm. you have to get all your equipment there and, you know, it's a very small island isolated in the Pacific, so essentially everything has to be brought in. Mm. It's not, not the least expensive place in the world. No. It's very much a place that I think there's a lot to learn there. There's a lot of exciting possibilities, and it's a high priority for me. Mm. Another high priority while we're talking about is the Sphinx. And I don't know if you realize it, but... Myself, I, and a geophysicist by the name of Thomas DeBecky, back in the early 90s with my early work on the Sphinx, we found seismically, so using seismic techniques, Mm -hmm. a chamber under the left paw of the Sphinx, which some people tie in. Do you know who Edgar Cayce is? Yes, yes. Yeah. But but, but he wasn't a scientist. He was clairvoyant. I'm not promoting whatsoever Mm. but it ties in with the bigger picture in some people's minds he thought there was a hall of records of the atlanteans yeah but he he's not the one actually who invented that notion that's been around even before okay i don't know why everybody gives him the credit for that yeah yeah, no but i'm not giving him credit for anything other than the fact and maybe you can correct me if i'm wrong but at least he said that it was near or under the Sphinx. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't even know this at the time, but we found a chamber under the left paw of the Sphinx. And Mm. Edgar Cayce, one of Edgar Cayce's son, one of the sons who was still alive at the time, actually called me in the early 90s and said I had confirmed what his father had said in, you know, a trance. Wow. And I said, well, I'll tell you, one thought that went through my head is, here I am sitting at Boston University. This is the last thing I need. <laughs> I confirm some psychic. You'll come home and your, your job is gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But 
so I'm not judging either way. I like no, no, the no. fam. I like the uh, Edgar Casey organization. I have spoken there. They have funded research in the past to Egypt. They funded. They have, oh. and they brought attention to it. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, they they put money into Egypt. They funded Mark Lehner, the Egyptologist. Even Sahi Havas, I heard, was yeah, yeah, yeah. Sahi Havas. They mm. certainly helped out financially in the past, but. We were talking about potential projects. Yeah. Another potential project I would very much like to pursue is that chamber to explore it further using geophysical techniques. And the ultimate thing would be to somehow penetrate it, enter it, um, mm. whether that means excavations in front of the Sphinx Temple to, pry, to find the potential entrance or maybe drilling into it with a fiber and putting in a fiber optic. I don't know, but that's another major project. It could be mm. bigger than um, Tutankhamun's tomb. Yeah. And normal reason tells you that if there was an advanced civilization and uh, we don't have that many uh, surviving that uh, discovered uh, heritage from them. So if there should be a place where they would store something, I don't know, library, remembers, records, yeah. that is a good candidate. Oh, I think it's a very good candidate. Mm. I think it's absolutely a good candidate. You know, when when you're, um, your civilization is collapsing around you and there's devastation, and I'm talking about the end of the last ice age, you probably want to yeah. secure some things. You probably want to put some things underground. What do we do today when there's world wars or the prospect of um, nuclear war? Things are underground. Yeah, you know about the seed vault in Svalbard in Norway? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's an example. <laughs> exactly. Perfect example right there yeah. in Norway. Yeah. But we've come to this crucial point now. Uh, and I want you to give us uh, a take on what you think made a global civilization go under like this so that we forgot, although we have, of course, clues in Plato and other stuff. And we also have people talking about a global tilt and a pole shift and all that. Yeah. I want you to to put the record straight from your view. Okay, from my view, you know, there's a lot of things been, that have been proposed. I've gone through them in my own research, etc., None of them hold up in my assessment other than what I've hit upon, and I'm not the only person to be talking about this, that we have a dramatic climate change at 9700 B.C., a dramatic warming at 9700 B.C. that literally snapped us out of the last ice age. In Greenland ice cores now – using what's known as microstratigraphy, you can look at, you can see the last couple of years, the last few years of the Ice Age. You can see a dramatic change occur the next year because there's markers. Excuse me, when are you dating this? What? What time period are you talking about again? Oh, 9700 B.C. Yeah, uh, fitting Plato yeah. around uh, 10,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to Plato. 9700 B.C., Mm. But 9700 B.C., fairly precisely, I'm not using this as a round number. Okay, precisely. Some people say, depending on how you count the ice ice um, layers, because the ice puts down layers just like tree rings. Mm. So some people, and I'm saying when I say some people, some of the uh, geologists who have been working with directly with ice cores, they'll maybe tell you seven 
97. Yeah, I actually know one who told me that. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, but some of them have said 97 and 3, so 9703 BC versus, let's just call it 9700 BC. Okay. That's pretty detailed anyway. It is pretty detailed. Yeah. And it's a matter of, you know, did you miss a ring or did you miss a layer here or there? Mm. But you can look in the ice cores and you can see yearly markers because of seasonal changes for the different, um, like iron and calcium, et cetera, different elements, different isotopes. We can look at solar activity based on beryl, uh, beryllium and things like that, different isotopes. And there's uh, temperature proxies, et cetera. So you can literally see year to year to year, and you can see the last year literally of the ice age, and then the dramatic warming, the dramatic change the next year. And that dramatic change occurs within that sequence of ice for that year so it's really down to essentially weeks or days wow. it may have literally been overnight so it's really dramatic and i want to stress this uh because when i was a graduate student we thought oh the ice age ended quickly and dramatically and people were thinking centuries was dramatic from a geologic point of view mm. no talking literally days or overnight so what can cause this what can cause a dramatic warming what will show give the proper isotope signature etc the bottom line for me all the evidence points and there's lots of different types of evidence that point to a major solar outburst a major eruption of the sun that electromagnetic pulse electric magnetic pulse where there would have been an emp electromagnetic pulse there would have been what's known as an spe solon a solar proton event or mm. or solar particle event there would have been coronal mass ejection or ejections what's known as plasma electrically charged particles would have been spewed at the earth apparently well they the Earth must have been just in the right position to take the impact of this. Yeah, because I was going to say this happens all the time, but this time it's against Earth. It happens all the time, but yes and no. I mean, you don't have huge ones all the time, and okay. you don't have Earth lined up with it all the time. No. And if you have a series of huge ones, even if some of them miss Earth, mm -hmm. if the sun is going through a very volatile period when it's spewing these out, Earth is... If you're running back and forth and someone's shooting a gun, eventually you're going to get hit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You see what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. if you're going through a volatile time with the sun and the sun is being erratic and it's throwing out uh, these solar eruptions. So I'm using the term solar eruptions, solar outbursts as a general term to encompass coronal mass ejections, solar flares, EMPs, solar proton events. We were apparently hit by one or more of these in 9700 BC. And when you look at the isotope data, the sun was very active, very erratic at that time. Sort of went very high highs of activity, then it would go down to very low activity, then would go back up to high activity. Sometimes I use the analogy to explain it to people I use the analogy of an earthquake where you have little maybe four shocks and you have a huge earthquake, then you have a bunch of aftershocks. Mm. Uh, but we were hit by something, I'm convinced, something major in terms of a solar outburst, 9700 BC. This would have had 
devastating consequences on Earth and would have uh, devastated the ancient early civilizations, this early cycle of civilization. You, a, a major solar outburst hitting Earth like this would have caused, actually it would have been probably, I don't know if I want to call it pretty, but it would have been very dramatic. You're in Norway. You're familiar with um, the northern lights, as we call it in America, aurora borealis. Mm, yeah. Can you yeah. guys see that on a regular basis? So uh, occasionally I can see it from my hometown, Bergen, which is very south, but only like once a year or something. Okay. You have to go a bit further north. That's more than we see it in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> because you're <laughs> That is beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, because of the latitude. But... When you have a major solar outburst like this, it would spread around the Earth as the uh, coronal mass ejection, etc., hits the magnetosphere, interacts. You would have seen this around the Earth. Wow. And this would have formed major figures in the sky. What I mean by that is literally it would look sort of like stick men dancing. Yeah, yeah, like clouds. We we already project uh, recognition into clouds, so we would have done this to the... Yeah, yeah. Exactly, mm. exactly. But it would form very diagnostic, definitive shapes. Mm. A Los Alamos plasma physicist, Los Alamos is one of our government agencies here in New Mexico. Yeah. He's a plasma physicist. He's actually an expert on high-energy plasma physics and what would happen. He has pointed out that you would have very definitive structures in the sky that you would see. They would look sort of like stick figure men, but with sort of spots or donuts on their sides. Wow. Very diagnostic. You get other diagnostic shapes, including what would look like stick figures with bird's heads. Hmm. And he has pointed out, because he discovered this accidentally, looking at petroglyphs, ancient engravings on rocks, hmm. that around the world, and he and his associates have documented in over 130 countries very very ancient petroglyphs which i believe all go back to the end of the last ice age to this major incident that they showed these diagnostic features as if people were looking up at the sky and recording what they saw in fact he's convinced and i'm convinced that's what was happening in, with many of these petroglyphs and, and it may have influenced some of the god figures absolutely mm. i mean what is one of the most common themes not just in egypt but elsewhere too it is gods that basically have birds heads and human bodies mm. or bird yeah. men we have on easter island the cult of the bird man all this starts to tie together dogons yeah yeah uh, and, and the Rongo Rongo, which we won't have time to get into now, may be a reflection of the same thing. In fact, my wife Katie pointed out that the Rongo Rongo script of Easter Island is essentially the petroglyphs, the plasma configurations, uh, which seem to have been recorded and then they copied and copied and copied them, you know, like a sacred text or something that yeah. they realized was important. So you'd have that in the sky. So you'd see these things in the sky. In 1859, there was something known as the Carrington event, which is a very small solar outburst astrophysically that hit Earth. And people were seeing these in the sky. They described them. But we didn't have that much technology then, so we, did, we didn't have no. technology. We didn't. Well, the telegraph lines at the time were fried. Yeah, mm. Mm. it hit. Now you know you and I wouldn't be on the internet. We'd 
be thrown back to a dark age. Billions of people would be thrown back to a dark age. Lots of people would die because they're totally dependent on technology and cities, et cetera. But we don't mm. go into all that doom and gloom right now. Uh, so getting back to the end of the last ice age, you would see these things in the sky, but on Earth, you would literally change climate drastically overnight warming. You would have, as um, Katie is very good at describing things, think of fire hitting water or fire hitting ice when in certain places you had huge electrical discharges making their way down to the surface of the earth where it would, if there's ice there, it would essentially melt it immediately and vaporize it if it hit water. It uh, would vaporize surface water. If it hit rock, it would melt the rock, something known as vitrification, where it would melt the surface layer and then it would recongeal. We find that in places around the world at the end of the last ice age. Uh, if it hit a place where there's flammable materials, it could incinerate them or set fires. Hmm. Uh, so all kinds would it also lead to volcanic activity could, well i was getting to volcanic activity when you release mm. incredible amounts of ice at high latitudes it releases pressure on the crust so magma that's under pressure now is released so it increases volcanic activity likewise it increases earthquake activity mm. and we have evidence of that in modern times on iceland for instance where because of modern global warming in the last century, which is mm. orders of magnitude less than what happened at the end of the last ice age. But even with that minor, relatively minor warming and the melting of the ice, increases of volcanic and earthquake activity. That yeah, we got the dirt uh, a few years ago. Remember they had to close down all airplanes and everything yeah yeah we we got it it rained down on our head absolutely I'm blind. <laughs> ashes yeah, yeah 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 exactly so you had literally associate with the solar outburst you had incineration on the surface of the earth in some areas you had wildfires being set you had mm. all this atmospheric moisture from melting glaciers and water that was evaporated, this would come back down as torrential rains, even as you had fires in other areas. Of course, that would cause major flooding. You think of the mm. deluge, the biblical Noah's flood. You had rising sea levels due to melting glaciers. Uh, you had... Um, of the atmosphere. And you have you have flood myths all over the world, too. Yeah, yeah, you have mm. myths describing these types of features literally around the world. And modern research, I, I can cite a guy named Michael Wiesel, who has talked about the origins of the world's myths, and that there are these commonalities among myths, which he dates back to before the end of the, or dates back to the end of the last ice age, mm. to this remote period that these myths go back and this is again another researcher talking about this but he's not tying it with a solar outburst um, mm. but he does document that these myths go way back and they are global they are to me not shared myths um, and that they were just being passed around randomly but they're describing things that people were experiencing around the world during these tumultuous times Mm. I was going to say, you also have a breakdown of the 
ozone layer, most likely, you, uh, the ionosphere. Uh, it's been calculated by a fellow, Dr. Paula Violetta, yeah. that during a major uh, solar outburst like this, what he refers to as SPE event, that you would have high radiation levels on the surface of the earth. How could you escape? You would go underground. That would be the best way to escape, to go initially, I believe, into natural caves. Yeah. And so the population would decimate it, but some people could... A amazing that we survived at all. Amazing that they're still humans. Yeah, it's actually amazing. And, mm. and you have pockets of places, for instance, Cappadocia in Turkey, where people survived because I believe there were natural caves, but then this set off a tradition of building things underground or going underground. Mm. Uh, there's an Austrian archaeologist, biologist, uh, studies caves, who has documented that associate with end of the last ice age sites. There are numerous, uh, he says, you know, people say inexplicable caves and tunnel like structures. Well, to me, this makes perfect sense mm. because that's where you would go to survive. And maybe the first ones got wiped, you know, the first ones experienced it. Those that survived were the ones that could get into natural caves, but realize this might happen again. So we better prepare. And, the sun probably confirmed that by undergoing what I would refer to as geologically, the geological analogy, aftershocks, that you know, war was happening. And likewise, maybe um, they had a tradition of this. Maybe they had very ancient myths that this had happened before. Yeah. Um, you, you say something very crucial there that we have to learn from this. And I'm asking you now, do you know, it's not your area, of course, but do you know if we have protected our power plants from... Uh, no, I know that we haven't for the most part. We haven't. Right. Oh, in fact, we're incredibly vulnerable. I and, my, and I talk about this in Forgotten Civilization, my book, Forgotten mm. Civilization. I believe that we are much more vulnerable than any civilization has been in the past. Mm. It decimated that earlier cycle of civilization, that antediluvian, that, well, let's say pre-Ice Age civilization, which... Atlantis, if you would. Mm. That's essentially Plato oh, cool. called it. But right now, we are so vulnerable because we're based on electricity. We're based yeah. on fragile computers and electronics. We've got satellites. Even with minor solar flares and whatnot, they can sometimes hit and knock out transformers, and you mm. don't replace Transformers easily. We've got nuclear power plants. Look at Fukushima. If you start knocking out the grid system, power Jeez. doesn't go to the nuclear power plants. They can't cool properly. There's mm. all kinds of potential problems with meltdowns. Uh, hundreds of power plants around the world, nuclear power plants that are vulnerable. Now, there has to be a popular demand to protect these things because we're talking about uh, yeah. it's not a, it's not a question of if it will happen it's a question of when well, it's a question of when and now we're starting to sound like doom and gloom but this is yeah. the quality of it yeah. you know i live in the boston area i think of boston or new york or any major city around the world hmm. it's so dependent the populace is so dependent upon electricity yeah for everything, for um, especially in cold countries like Norway and, yeah. and North America, yeah, mm. yeah, for warmth, for water circulation, 
for uh, uh, food, you know, uh, getting food to people at the right place, right time, pumping. It will all break down. It will all break down yeah. if it happens. Because we today, just to have um, any type of machine, you have to go to China, you have to get stuff from uh, America. I mean, you, yeah. you, there's, there's no more local productions. Well, I also remember China and America, where all, all these countries, all these developed technologies are going to be vulnerable during a major solar outburst. It's probably going to hit worldwide. Some mm. areas might be affected more than others, depending on how it comes in, what the situation is within magnetosphere at the time. Hmm. But uh, I would just want to tell you, you may know him since you're in the same area. There's this geologist in my family who is man-made cl climate change skeptic. And he's uh, he's been a critic of the man-made global warming thing for years and years. He's he's just retiring now this year, actually. Oh, okay. And he's uh, he's been punished too. Um, of course, they couldn't kick him out because he's a full professor. Mm. But uh, they kind of he he was placed in the <laughs> proverbial basement. Uh, yeah, he be. showed me some of his books on on investigating. Uh, mineral and ice evidence and stuff. So he's been d deeply involved in this for years and years. And he's told me so frightening scenarios because uh -huh. he told me like, if you see how political the global warming thing is, and if yeah. you're right that we have a very, we don't have much time, what actually needs to happen before anything else is that we get this political grip on the climate change debate away so that we can explore it freely. Oh, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Because, you know, I, I even saying what I say on your show, that type of thing, if I were not tenured, uh, I'd never be tenured. Mm. And as it is, uh, I don't go with the status quo conventional thinking, which so much money is tied up in anthropogenic yeah. climate change, yeah. that it has to be global warming, it has to be caused by humans. And there's I mean, true, not billions, probably trillions of dollars tied up with that agenda. Exactly. And, and the problem is that if we need to protect ourselves, that paradigm needs to go. It's like we, yeah, exactly. you know, we would be just as bad off if it was Christian evangelists, yeah, yeah. fundamentalists ruling us. They would also deny it, right? And nothing would happen. Oh, absolutely. It's the same situation. It's a, exactly the same situation in that sense. Yeah. Now, it's, it's, really, it's really troublesome. It's really bothersome because... And I think, you know, 100 years from now or whenever, well, maybe we'll be all gone in 100 years because solar outbursts will have hit. Yeah. But if we survive or whoever survives, they'll, someone is going to look back if there's a survivor and if they're thinking about such things and say this whole nonsense of anthropogenic global warming was such a distraction. It was so horrible. It kept us from, mm. kept humanity mm from doing what it needed to do for a long time. I mean, even if we turn things around tomorrow, it's caused that paradigm to me has caused a lot of wasted money and yeah. time and effort. And, and all the people who has been unfairly treated, lost their jobs, all that. Exactly. I was about to say that all the people who have been, um, mm. you know, it's, it's just horrible. Hmm. Now we're going to have a series on this too, so so we hope to contribute to bring attention to it. But the kudos to you, Robert, for having the uh, stamina to speak freely and uh, what you know to be true. And uh, yeah. Well, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that.
But according to uh, this geologist, he said that uh, right now uh, the sun is actually at a bottom point of activity. They did expect around 2012 that it would uh, erupt again, but it's it's now in an almost an ice age phase. But my question to you is, how fast can the sun go from okay. cold to warm again? To, yeah, to... that's what I want to address right now. Okay. And then yep. maybe this was where we'll wrap things up for today. As yep. I can see, we've gone on a long time. We have, we have. And I don't mean to rush you or anything, but uh, there's just, you know, we could talk for days. We could, we could. Weeks. And it's so exciting. But go ahead, yeah. tell us. Okay, but what I want to say is that what you have to realize, and I'm no one didn't I'm not countering, I'm complimenting what you were saying was passed on to you. Mm -hmm. There are short-term solar cycles. There are longer-term solar cycles. There are even longer-term solar cycles, even longer than that. Mm -hmm. So there are solar cycles from the classic, and people say 11 year, but it's approximately 11 year. It actually varies a bit from cycle to cycle. There's the 11-year cycle that people are familiar with. There are longer-term cycles on the order of centuries. There are cycles on the order of millennia. So there are cycles within cycles, yes. Yeah, there are cycles. And I think one of the more important cycles, although it's still people can argue back because we don't have that much data, I think there's a cycle on the order of twelve to 13,000 years, about 12,000-year cycle hmm. where the sun goes through very volatile and erratic periods then sort of stabilizes for literally thousands of years and then becomes volatile and erratic again. Mm. So I want to address that big cycle along with the little cycle, mm -hmm. the 11 and 22 year cycle. There is based on isotope data as a proxy for solar activity, it records solar activity. We have lots of very strong evidence that the sun was incredibly, incredibly active and volatile at the end of the last ice age and the centuries and millennium or two after that. What that means is that the sun was really active at some times. Then it would die down, if you would, mm -hmm. almost come to a standstill. I can't talk. Stand still. still. So it if you had been living, then you say, oh, all of a sudden the sun is really inactive. We're going to ice age. Mm -hmm. But then a year or two later or a decade later, all of a sudden the sun erupts and it's doing the opposite. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's be, it's really erratic and it's going up and down and up and down on the order of years or uh, just a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. And then it finally stabilized, and it was stable for eight, ten thousand years. So for a long time, it has started to become very volatile and erratic in the last seventy or so years. Mm -hmm. So right now, it's doing weird things. When the people think it might be, you know, should be more active, it seems to be less active, etc. That's why there's been a lot of talk about well, we're going into another ice age. Mm -hmm. I think that's very short term. We don't. That's looking at the short term erratic nature of the sun right now and extrapolating that as if okay, it's sort of calmed down. It's at a low. It's going to stay at a low. 
what I believe the bigger picture says, looking at the data, is that no, we're in a very erratic period, and this is what you expect from the sun, that it's really active, then it's really non-active, but that indicates it's going to get very active again, because it's going through that volatile erratic period. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So... So right now, I think you can't just look at oh, a couple of years worth of data or even a decade worth of data and, and make these long-term predictions because I think the sun, and again, this is based on other data, looking at the longer term, the sun is in a stage of um, disequilibrium. That term has actually been used for the sun by one astrophysicist where it is recalibrating, if you would. It's re reequilibrating. And at and doing that, it's going through these huge, if you want to be anthropomorphic, mood swings. Mm. It's sort of like, what what do they call one of these? Um, uh, uh, I, I, I shouldn't say this, maybe, but, you know, I think if you want to be anthropomorphic, it's sort of becoming bipolar. It's, you know, mm. <laughs> it's really one way one day, it's another way another day, or one year versus another day. But, but, but if that's begun again, and, and which will explain, of course, the climate change period we're in now, that means it's starting to work itself up to a new fit. So how much time do you think we have? There's still time, isn't there? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Remember, we mentioned the Carrington event in 1859. Yeah. Yeah. That could be the proverbial, at least in America, they say the shot, the shot across the bow, talking about when, you know, you shoot a cannon, I guess, across the bow of another of an enemy ship to say there's a give it warning. Mm. There could be things happening. And the Carrington event happened major solar outbursts from a human perspective, very small from an astrophysical perspective. It happened during what's been described as a ho-hum period of the sun, when the mm. sun didn't seem to be real active otherwise. So you can have even a, quote, non-active sun in the very short term, and all of a sudden it erupts. But in answer to your question, I think we're going through a period of really erratic behavior, volatility, and if it happened in the next month, I would not be surprised. So it's just a matter of... But I'm not predicting it's going to happen this month. No, no, no. But but you're saying that we were already within the window where it can happen. What? You're saying we're already within the window where it Absolutely. can happen. Absolutely. That's a good way to put it. I think we're within the window. Jeez. I will not be surprised if it happens, we'll say, sooner than later. I would not be surprised. In fact... Mm. If it's going to happen, I'd like to see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it will be very likely the last thing you'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I don't think I don't think we're talking about a situation. We're not, I'm not talking geologically now, where I say, "Oh, it will absolutely happen," and then I say, "But of course, I'm a geologist, and I'm really talking about you know thousands of years from now." No, I'm not talking about thousands of years from now. I think we're in the situation in a situation where it could happen at any time. I want to point out something, and it, it just occurred to me, just a few days ago, the President of the United States signed um, what was executive order that uh, agencies, government agencies in the United States should be looking into this seriously and making preparations and reporting back. So this is actually being taken seriously at the highest levels in America. And I believe in other governments around the world, whether they're talking about it or not. 
So yeah. Well, the first thing we should do is to protect our electricity. Yeah, this is something in the distant future. It could happen. Mm. Like I said, we as a society are really vulnerable. Oh, One of the lessons is it devastated that early cycle of civilization that was had arisen before 9700 BC that Plato maybe a metaphor calls Atlantis. Atlantis, according to Plato's chronology, placed into our way of thinking Atlantis was devastated based on what Plato says vaguely. He talks about you know, 9,000 years before Solon. That would put it about 9,600 BC. To me, that is basically right in line with the yeah. modern geological data of 9,700 BC. I don't think that's coincidence. No, he got it from Egypt. So, so yeah, he got it from Egypt, of course. Mm -hmm. But that means that uh, let, let's say that your timing is exact. Let's say that you uh, have uh, decoded the t cycle timing. Could it still happen after our lifetime? Because it's a big window, isn't it? It's a big window. And yeah, could it happen after our lifetime? Sure. And I mean, you know, could I get hit by a bus tomorrow? So it'll be after my life. No, but I mean, I, know what you're saying. I mean, uh, if your timing already is, is correct, 9,500 9, years. Would it still give room for this to happen after I'm gone? <laughs> That's basically yeah, what yeah, I... <laughs> yeah, I think it could. I mean, maybe okay. you'll get lucky and and it won't happen until after your lifetime. But I so. <laughs> I'm not counting on it. No. Am I counting on it? I put it this way. I don't... I think that is a bad way to think about it because it's easy for people to... Think in terms, this will not happen in my lifetime. Mm. Therefore, I don't really need to worry about it. I don't really need to prepare for it. Mm. Um, and I'll say in America, I hate to broad brush things, but, you know, there's a lot of politicians that they just think in terms of the election cycle. Yeah. And they think in terms of, well, if this doesn't happen during my term in office, I don't need to worry about it. Hmm. And I don't think that's a good way to think about it. And for people to think in terms of, well, it's not going to happen in my lifetime or the odds are it's not going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, I, I think that's a foolish way to think about everything that we should be doing, I believe, to prepare for it, fortifying our electrical grid systems, uh, hmm. cleaning up our nuclear waste, hmm. uh, deciding what to do about nuclear power plants, if we're going to keep using nuclear power to maintain them properly. I personally think we should get rid of nuclear power. Yeah, me too. I think it was an absolute mistake for many, many reasons. Uh, to protect our records, to have backup systems, et cetera, et cetera. All these things to me are logical no matter what, there's yeah. no harm in doing it, and there's great benefit to being prepared. Yeah, no, I, I totally back you here, and that's also one of the reasons we have this series is to make people aware of. We're going to have solar scientists on too, and 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 to make people aware so that there can be some public demand because our, the political system is broken and it only responds unless you're a multimillionaire billionaire. No. It only responds to popular demand. So that means people need to be informed. Exactly. So thank you a lot for coming on and informing us. Uh, at the end here, I just want to ask you a couple of questions about your projects. You, you have conferences uh, around the world and tours, don't you? Yes, absolutely. 
So what can people expect, uh, let's say, on a tour? Oh, what they expect is uh, a wonderful tour where I'm with the group the entire time. We're all together. We see the sites, whatever the particular tour might be. I love showing the sites to uh, people, talking about my own research, my own interpretations. Mm. And um, we include everything, all the meals, et cetera, which I think is important. We don't let people just, you know, wander in their own and waste time. So we have a really good time. And the real focus is for us to have the ability to see the sites firsthand and for people to be able to pick my brains. I will also generally I give uh, presentations during the tour to tell people, you know, explain to people what they're going to see so they can maximize what they get out of going to see these mm. sites. So are your tours the same tours that Anthony West have, or is the these separate uh, tours? No, no, I do my own separate tours. Mm, he okay. does primarily Egypt. I've done Egypt. I've done Peru, Bolivia, wow. East Island, um, Turkey, mm. not just Gebekli Tepe when we go to Turkey, although I haven't got anything planned for it at the moment given the political situation. We go to a number of ancient sites in Turkey. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I just do it. We're, we've got a site. A tour to Malta coming up. If people are interested, because the tours, you know, as I plan them, then they get posted, then they fill up and go, and then we do more. So I do tours like that. I also, of course, go to these places for my own mm. research on my own or with my wife, etc. But one thing I want to stress about the tours is that they're all inclusive, they're comprehensive. We are, when I say we, Katie, my wife, and I, uh, we are together with the group the entire time mm. it's good time to interact people get so much out of these tours i really believe that because people say that and it's really nice when you have someone that goes on a tour with you to one site you know they liked it you know they got a lot out of it when they sign up for another tour to a different site and mm. you know they're how do you say repeat yeah um, well coming back so, and I don't do it, you know, it's, this is not a, um, trying to do it for profit or anything like that. I just do it because we enjoy it. And mm. there is nothing like experiencing these sites firsthand. And I would tell people to do it as the opportunity arises. Because sometimes, you know, politics change and it, you can't go back to them. Or they get covered over or damaged or, you know, you just never know. So don't put things off if mm. you're in. Also, I would warn people, be careful what tours you go on. We have really high quality. And I'm not trying to sound negative about anyone else. No, no. But but I know it's true what you say. Mm. But we're inclusive. You focus on the sites and what we're going to see on our tour. So I learned this maybe from teaching at Boston University. And sometimes I would take students on spring recess trips, that type of thing. I have found that the best approach is that we are all together. We're like one big family, if you would. All the meals are planned ahead of time. People don't need to worry about any of those pragmatic, practical mm. issues. And they can really focus on seeing the sites and getting to know them and understand them. And we have a great time in the process. People yeah, make friendships sure. on these tours last mm. rest of their lives it's a real bonding experience so again if i could say it 
so people know where to go, they should go to my website, www.robertshock. And remember, shock is spelled S-C-H-O-C-H. So www.robertshock.com. And uh, people don't even bother to Google that because we will put up all these links that Robert has mentioned at our presentation page of him. Sounds great. At our website. So you will find the links to his tours, to his website, to, to all the other stuff he's mentioned today. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. And please, people should go back because, you know, of course, as I said, we post different tours as they fill up or they go, and then we plan other ones. So if it's not this year and you want to, hopefully I'll still be doing this in future years up until the solar outburst. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try to get on one of those tours before that. I, yeah, it's really I love theme tours, and I can second what you say because – Going there physically without guide is just half the experience. Uh, oh, it's half the experience. You don't get even a you, – I would say you don't even get half of it probably. No, no. Because you, you want to be informed. You want uh, someone – You want the context, right? You want, that's uh, right. You want yeah. the context mm. and you want to be able to experience it. And also I get frustrated sometimes and I'm, I don't want to say anything bad about the internet and people post YouTube videos and whatnot. But you really – if you really want to experience these sites, you're not going to get it from watching YouTube videos or no. other internet. Um, no, so that's the other part. Just hearing about it without actually being present is not the same thing at all. Yeah, exactly. And these, it's like it's like me describing to you a Mozart concert, but exactly. you're not being able to hear it. So. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing like seeing being there yeah. genuinely. Yeah. And I have so many people that go to sites with me and they haven't been there before and they are just astounded. And they even say that it's absolutely true. You have to be there to really experience it. Mm. And I mean, if I was uh, without someone who could fill me in, I wouldn't even know, begin to know what I was looking at. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, I've had some people go and they said, oh, they've been to such and such a site and they were so disappointed. And I start talking and they, well, they didn't really know what they were looking at. They didn't really understand the context. They had no one to, right. to help yeah. them. Yeah, fill in the blanks. Yeah, you're not just, just you won't necessarily get that on your own. No, it's a totality, and that's also the reason that there are many theme tours. It's not something you invented. I mean, this has been going no, on, no, not at all. and it's a reason for that yeah. because that's the full yeah. package. Yeah. But coming to your uh, lectures, is there any upcoming uh, public lecture? Yeah. Uh, well, right now I have. Um, where will I be? I'll be in Detroit. It's on the website again. Yeah. I'll be in Detroit next month, earlier next month, and then what's known as Earthkeeper later in the month in Denver. So, are you talking November here? I'm sorry. Are we talking November? Yeah, November. The, the month next month, the month of November. Yeah, because this show may uh, will be published in November, so they may get it in time. We'll see. Yeah, they may get it in time. But you know mm. what I'd really say is. People should just go to my website, even if this is up years from now, go to my website and I update that as new lectures are posted and invited to um, other venues. I know some other venues that it looks like I might be speaking at, but they haven't been finalized or posted yet, so I'm not going to until it's all finalized. So people should just check back to the website periodically. Yeah. And, and like I said, you'll find it, follow our presentation page. Uh, you said you were writing a book 
uh, with uh, Robert uh, yeah. Bouval these days. So finally, I just want to know, um, is when is that due? Uh, what is it about? And if, is there a title already? Yeah, I'm already. I'm always working on de- several books, but the mm-hmm. one I'll talk about now because you brought it up, and I guess I had mentioned it before, is uh, going to be called, or at least the title at the moment, is Origins of the Sphinx. Cool. Origins of the Sphinx, and it's a culmination of decades of work that both of us have done, and we decided to combine our. Um, material, combine our forces, if you would, and write a book together. It's interesting that we're writing the book together, but we're very clear about whose sections are what. So it'll be interesting. This is the first book you write with Robert, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, he's been he's been making books with everyone, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Not, not with you before. Yeah, he has. He does. He, he likes to do that. Yeah. He's retired, I guess, and he has plenty of time. And uh, yeah. But this is the first for you guys. This is the first one I've done with him. Mm. And when I say first one, it is uh, it's well along in the sense that the final manuscript is with the publisher. Inner Traditions will be publishing it. They are working on editing the manuscript now, getting it ready for actual production. Great. So, yeah, it's all done and in the works. I don't like talking about books that aren't at a fairly advanced stage because, you know, I've heard many people talking about, oh, they're writing this or that book and it never comes to fruition. Hmm. But this book is uh, definitely with the publisher and they're preparing it now for the final, you know, actual production. I last heard that it should be out sometime, I would say, toward the – End of the first half of next year, 2017, I believe. Mm. But, you know, Great. these dates are always tentative because yeah. things can always... But, but we could definitely expect this one at least. So Yeah, yeah, mm. but I, it should be out next year. I would say the first half of next year. Mm. Or at the end of the first half of next year would be my expectation right now. So that'll be a good book. That'll be a book for people to look at. And if I could say it this way, once that book is out... People might want to pick that up because that will really go into detail. It does really go into detail about the argument for an older Sphinx. Mm. And that then goes nicely hand in hand with my book, Forgotten Civilization, which people can pick up now, of course. Mm. And following the book with Bouval, I have some other books I'm writing just myself as a sole author that I will uh be um, finishing up and submitting hopefully sooner than later and getting those out. So again, people should look for forthcoming books in the next few years. Yep. Very good. Because our, our uh, listeners, they, they are book readers. They, uh, they, they're not like, you know, the attention span of, of most people today is, is very short. We get the brighter ones. So they want long interviews. They listen to it in the car, whatever, you know. And and one of um, the things we do at our presentation pages is that we post the entire bibliography of a guest because I've been annoyed by so many faulty and chaotic bibliographies. Uh, even Amazon, you can't trust entirely. So oh. we'll, of course, update your bibliography when yeah. uh, more books come out. Good. Excellent. Excellent. I appreciate that. I appreciate that you came on. It was such an honor and very interesting. And of course, yeah, we, this is fine. Wonderful. we didn't have uh, you know, the time to 
explore everything we wanted, but hopefully we've given people enough to realize that there's more to go into here and explore, like they can do, for instance, through your books, or who knows, maybe also future interviews with you. Yeah, good. Yeah. Thanks a lot again to you and your wife for facilitating this and that you came on and shared with us from your great knowledge. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Same thing. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Robert Schock. As part of a longer series of interviews with scholars and experts on the evidence for prehistoric human civilization. We're still early in the series and have much, much more to come. By the end of it, no thinking person can harbor any doubt about the fact that mankind is a species with amnesia and that there's no scientific or rational reason for denial of our long history, perhaps except for this fact. If you really want to control a person, what is the most effective means? More effective than brute force, blackmail, pressure, enticement, lies, and so on. Well... The most effective is to remove that person's memory. Think about it. If someone doesn't know or remember anything whatsoever about yesterdays and backwards, you can make that person believe and accept anything. And mind you, the exact same works at the collective level as at the individual, if not even better, as you can make the prisoners keep each other back and in check. Our aim with this series is to remove your blindfold and confront you with the inconvenient facts that for so long has been silenced, ignored and suppressed, but which is finally starting to unravel like an avalanche as more and more indisputable evidence emerges and more and more researchers are coming around and voicing their knowledge. So, stay tuned and follow us further down this road henceforth. In the show today, we mentioned Plato as probably the most known of ancient sources relating to us information about the Ice Age culture, that the ancients referred to as Atlantis or some version of that word. It is well known that detailed accounts about this existed in ancient archives, notwithstanding the library of Alexandria. And as many scholars have shown, even among Amero-Indians and Tibetans, of which the latter allegedly still has scrolls about this in certain distant monasteries... Be that as it may, in future programs in this series, we will end them by reading quotes regarding this subject from Plato and a few other ancient sources. But today, I will start by naming some of these sources to you, so you know to what extent factual information survived, and not just legions of mythical and poetic accounts, and so that you can explore further 
if you so wish. Uh, keep in mind, when uh, you now hear this list, I'm going to read you, keep in mind that uh, the word Atlantis, although rooted in some original word, well, we, we don't know, of course, the root word, but it exists in several different versions. And uh, it's foolish to expect all the different references to Atlantis and Atlanteans to be spelled the same. The Berbers of North Africa had place names like Atala, uh, while the Sanskrit writings tells us of an island in Atlantic called Atala, and to Philo it was called Atalantes, and, and to Herodotus it was Atlantes, but to Diodorus it was Atlantoi, only uh, 400 years later, and we also find that the Aleta of uh, San Chuniathon were Aurita to Manetho 900 years later. So words changes by not just in time, but also in space, meaning place in geography. You also have similar spellings among South American Indians in, in their old sources. Unfortunately, most of it was destroyed by the conquistadors. But we know there are many good solid sources also surviving there. And also there it was Atlan and versions like that. So even though it's a symbolic word for us today, for this culture, it's by all intents and purposes, it seems to be rooted in some source word, which is pretty similar. And of course, the Atlantic Ocean is called after the continent of Atlantis. So... About 4000 BC, you have uh, Egyptian sources, namely particularly the Book of the Dead, that says that King Tooth ruled an island in the west which was destroyed by water and brought the surviving rulers eastward to Egypt. About 2500 uh, BC, you have uh, the Palermo Stone. The source's royal canon lists the last eight of the ten god kings, including Kronos, also known as Seb, Osiris, Set, and possibly Tooth. Mind you, all these kings, according to all the ancient information, also of Greece and Egypt, the, the gods ruled in the beginning. These were called Atlanteans. So these kings, these god kings, where the notion of sacred blood, holy blood, royal blood stems from, are precisely regarding Atlanteans. Uh, others also list these, these ten god kings. Um, yeah. About uh, 2000 BC, you have uh, Vishnu, who writes in the Purana, that locates Atala, which is what the Indians called, called Atlantis, the white island in the Western Ocean at same latitude as Canary Islands in the Atlantic. And many experts think that the Canary Island is some remnant. But, of course, the problem of locating Atlantis is another and complex matter we'll not get into here. Then you have um, about 1300 BC, the Turin Papyrus, in the king list, lists the ten god kings whose reign over a foreign country ended 9850 BC, followed by the reign of the demigods. 
Then you have uh, 1190 BC, which is uh, yeah, of Sanchuniathon, which is Phoenician history, calls ancient god kings of former times the Aletean kings, gives Phoenician legions of Tooth, Kronos, Atlas and Cephs. Then you have 800 BC, Homer in the Iliad refers to the imprisonment of the titan Kronos at the far end of the earth beneath the waters of the restless sea. You have uh, 735 BC, Hesiod in his Theogony tells us of the titans who, after losing a ten-year war, were imprisoned beneath the waters of the ocean in the far west. 600 BC, you have the Mahabharata in the Karna Parva, describes a ten-year war at the end of which the island of Atala and all its inhabitants sank into the western ocean. 590 BC, Solon, which is uh, a great-grandfather of Plato, in his great annals called Atlantica, which unfortunately is lost to us today. We know it from description. Solon began his epic poem Atlantica based on the story of Atlantis he had gotten from the priests of Sais in Egypt. You have 460 BC, Hellanicus, in his work Atlantis. Uh, he wrote a chronology entitled Atlantis, of which only fragments remain, mentioning Poseidon and Atlas. Many believe those to be two continents or two islands that belong to this empire. Then you have 450 BC, Herodotus, also known and called the first historian of the world, in his uh, work Histories, describes the ocean now called Atlantic. He calls that Atlantis Sea. Also describes a tribe of Atlanteans living in North Africa, which may be a colony or, or survivals. Then you have uh, 350 BC, Plato, in um, two different works, Timaeus and Critias. Plato relates the now familiar story of Atlantis and its final destruction by earthquakes, floods and subsidence. Next, we have in 340 BC, Bhavishya in Purana mentions Atala, the white island across a sea of salt water in the west, inhabited by Magas who worship Surya, the sun. In 320 BC, Theopompus, in the work Meropis, priests of Phrygia tells him of a continent of great size in the far west, inhabited by both peaceful and warlike people. 300 BC, Crantor, in comment on Timaeus, says... Priests of Sais show Crantor the temple columns from which Solon derived his knowledge of the story of Atlantis. So he, he verified. He was one of the, the ancient Greeks who got access to Egypt. Not many did, by the way. Most well-known are, are probably Plato, Herodotus and Pythagoras. Because the Egyptians didn't want to relate their archives to the Greeks in general. Only the most worthy got access. Moving on um, to uh, 250 before BC, Manetho in Old Chronicle lists the ten god kings, which he called the Aurita, 
who during the reign of the gods ruled a foreign country. 100 BC, you have Aelian in De Natura Animalium, describes dwellers by the ocean. Say the ancient kings of Atlantis traced their descent back to the god Poseidon. Circa 100 BC, Marcellus in Ethiopic history tells us that Canary Islanders, who by the way died out I think around 100 years, 50 years ago, I think the last original native Canary Islander, uh, but they preserved traditions of Atlantis which they alleged had once governed all the islands in the Atlantic. And indeed, if Canary Island is a fragment, remnant of Atlantis, they would have memory, if not records, of it. 25 BC, Strabo in Geography expressed the opinion that Plato's story about the island of Atlantis was fact, not fiction. 8 BC, Diodorus in Library of History describes a race of Atlanteans living in Libya, North Africa, whose former deities originated in the Atlantic. 10 AD, here we have Philo Judeus in Incorruptibility. The island of Atlantis in Plato's Timos was overwhelmed by floods and earthquakes and suddenly disappeared. Remember, all these people had access to sources lost to us today. So it's not as if one is copying the other. I'm, I'm just reading different sources who all had access to various information that is now lost to us. And book burning, by the way, and destroying of written sources of any kind is the ultimate ignorance. We see how the fundamentalists love to do this. Again, if you want to control someone, remove their memory. Make them believe their children. 100 AD, Plutarch in Orb of the Moon claims that the Atlantic was shallow and unnavigable because of the subsidence of the island of Atlantis. 300 AD, Arnobius in Adversus Gentes writes of the destruction of Atlantis as if it were an accepted fact of history, which it of course was uh, to the people back in the day. 370 AD, Marcellinus in Rescesta on the disappearance of landmasses in the Atlantic Sea off the coast of Europe, a large island was swallowed up. And 470 AD, Proclus in commentary on Timaeus preserves Crantos' account, now lost, unfortunately, of his trip to Sais, Egypt, to see the temple records reported by Solon. Now, let me end by reminding you that our forums are only possible because of your support. So kudos to those of you who have chosen to finance this venture. Remember that you can sign up at our website where you will have access to backstage and bonus clips, forum talks with questions and comments from listeners, as well as access to the main shows months before they are released to the public, with a minimum of five unpublished programs at any given time. 
But when you do sign up, it's important that you send us a mail informing us that you have donated and signed up. Otherwise, it may take weeks, if not months, before we manage to grant you access. So, that concludes the show for today. Thank you for listening. Hope it has been of interest and inspiration. Your host, as ever, has been me, Al, sincerely signing off, and will soon be back with another sober mind blow. Be seeing you. number one.